here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Do I have everybody's attention now? Wrestling Podcast with your hosts, Joe Lanza. Exile, go listen to some boring podcast where, where they're afraid of their own shadow. Okay? Don't listen to Joe Lanza because Joe Lanza's not changing. And Rich Cringe. <laughs> who delivers <laughs> this guy in a big spot? Joe, don't yell at me. In the, in the big spot, who delivers better than this guy? <laughs> Stop yelling at me. I agree. You are listening to the most compelling voice in wrestling media. Internationally acclaimed broadcast journalist, as heard on BBC Radio, I am your host, Joe Lanza, and this is the best wrestling podcast on the planet, the Voices of Wrestling flagship podcast. How you guys doing today? As you have probably surmised, there is no Rich Krejci this week. There was no Joe Lanza last week, and there is no Rich Krejci this week. Next week, we will probably get back together and give you the complete twosome that you guys are accustomed to. I wanted to thank the young boy, Case Lowe, for the tremendous job he did last week stepping in. He stepped in for me last week. I could not do the show last week. Case Lowe stepped in and did a tremendous job. And it's unbelievable because he's like 12 years old. But, um, you know, of course he's one of the... Uh, co-host of Open the Voice Gate, so he's no stranger to doing 
a podcast. But, hey, listen, this is a big-time podcast listened to by, you know, thousands and thousands of people. And he didn't let that get to him. He stepped right in. He had plenty of hot takes. And, um, you know, lucky for him, Dragon Gate was front and center, and of course that's his specialty. And he, he, you know, he nailed it. He nailed it with that Dragon Gate, uh, that Dragon Gate review that they let off the show with last week. And you know, Dragon Gate, unfortunately, gets neglected around here sometimes. We just, you know, we can't always get to it. And it was nice to see Dragon Gate get a ton of focus last week, especially with Case Low on the show, uh, since he knows the product so well. And he did a great job. He really did. So, thank you, Case. I know you're listening. Um, I could not do the show last week, and the fact of the matter is, I, it was questionable whether I was going to do the show this week. And, you know, full disclosure, um, it, it, it's just the last two or three weeks or so, I just, I, I haven't been into wrestling. I've just had some things going on in my personal life, and uh, wrestling just hasn't been a priority. You know, I'll be completely honest with you. Um, I had no desire to keep up with or watch wrestling over the last two or three weeks uh, because my mind was just on other more important things. And, um, you know, it's not health-related or anything like that. So, you know, I'm healthy, I'm fine. It's just things in my life that just haven't been going so hot lately. And uh, I've, I've had to focus on taking care of those things and you know wrestling just was was the furthest thing from my mind over the last few weeks and I'll be uh, and I have to tell you guys that um, the last time I did the show which was two weeks ago I I thought the show was horrendous and I thought it was my fault I felt like I was terrible on that show two weeks ago and um, it was no fault of Rich I thought um, you know, I came into that show unprepared, and I thought I could fake my way through it, and I couldn't. It was just a horrible show because um, my heart wasn't in it, and my mind was not in it. And um, you know, if you go back and listen, and it was a big week with the WWE draft. And uh, that's the topic we let off with. And, and Rich asks, asks me a question right off the bat, um, you know, what I thought about the draft. And I just stumble through this awful two or three minute response where I just had no takes. And it was just, I had no opinion on anything. I, I you know, I didn't know who was on what show. I didn't, I, and, and I mean, I watched Raw. I watched the draft. It's just, my head just wasn't in the game. And I had no opinions on anything. If you can do a pro wrestling talk show, you have to have opinions. You have to have takes. And I didn't have any. And I thought I really left Rich, I really hung him out to dry on that entire show. I thought I did a terrible job. And, um, you know, I told Rich a couple days later, I, I, I said, look, man, you know what's going on in my personal life. I just, I can't, I just don't give a fuck about wrestling right now. And he understood. And I told him, I said, look, I'm not going to do a show next week because last week's show was, it was terrible. And I was terrible. And, and the fact of the matter is that's not what we do around here. I mean, I, you know, I take this show very seriously. I love doing the show. I love doing this audio. And man, I get into it. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, 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 
we we joke that you know you know we have a 10 minute production meeting before we do the show but the reason we can get away with that most weeks is because I'm so into doing this show and I'm so into the wrestling and I'm so excited that two or three days before the show I've got all my thoughts lined up and prepared I know what we're going to talk about I'm all fired up I'm excited I'm excited to share my thoughts and I'm all fired up and ready to go And Rich knows, you know, I, I, I prefer to just to just to just wing. I don't like to talk. I don't like to waste great material before we hit the record button. So, you know, we just do a, a basic layout of what we're going to talk about. And, and, and then we just go. But there's a great quote by uh, Colin Coward, who some of you might be familiar with. He's, he's a sports talk radio host and. You know, what you think of his opinions aside for a moment, he's very successful at what he does. He, you know, he's a millionaire uh, talk show host who gets paid million of do- millions of dollars to go, uh, you know, on the air and talk about sports for three hours a day. And those are the people I study, people who are successful at this and are great at this and make a lot of money doing it. And he's one of the people, I, I think he's a brilliant radio personality. I really do. Again, put his opinions aside, whatever you think of his opinions. Um, he's obviously very good at what he does uh, because he's very successful. And he has a great quote, and it's, it's this. It's, he says, in order to be interesting, you have to be interested and the fact of the matter is, over the last two or three weeks, I have not been interested in wrestling. And therefore, I could not come on this show and be interesting. I needed a break. And honestly, I thought the break was going to have to be a little bit longer than it was. But um, things have turned around for me a little bit, and I, I, I've jumped back in. Uh, feet first, the last couple days I binge-watched the entire G1, and I, I was into it, I was excited, and we're, I'm going to talk about a little bit of that today, we're going to do, do some G1 talk. Um, I've been watching the WWE program, I think that the SummerSlam build has been tremendous, I'm all fired up for SummerSlam, we're going to talk about SummerSlam today, and the build, which I think has been great. So I'm getting back in the groove. A little sooner than I thought. Um, but I didn't want to do another subpar show last week. It would have been even worse than the show two weeks ago. I mean, the show two weeks ago was embarrassing when I listened back to it. I listen back to every show we do, and I microanalyze, and I take notes, and I um, uh, just, just I'm, I'm very critical of myself because I, I want this show to be great, and I want it to be successful, and we are successful, and we continue to grow, and I want to be great at this. And and that show was utter shit. And it was because of me. Because my heart wasn't in it. I wasn't interested, so the show wasn't interesting. And I wasn't going to do another show like that last week. So, the show was just uh, much better off without me last week and Case did a great job 
So I want to thank Case. And um, I, I, you know, I'm back into it now, man. I'm back into the wrestling. I'm fired up. I'm excited. I'm interested. And, you know, and that's a big key. So we're going to do some wrestling. We're going to do a wrestling talk show here today. I'm going to give you guys a good show. Not the shit that you got two weeks ago. An awful draft talk where I was lost. And then, you know, and I knew I wasn't into it. You know, there was a point in that show where towards the end of the show we started talking about G1. And I knew I had bombed for two hours of that show. And I knew I was awful. And I knew I wasn't giving you guys the show you deserved. And I did like this. We were talking about the G1 and I did this forced, like, this forced enthusiasm and this forced fake rant because I felt like I had to give the show some juice and I listened back and it was just so cringe. It was cringe. And I just, I, and I was like, you know what? I just, I got to get away from wrestling for a while and straighten some shit out in my life. And, um, and, uh, You know, and I and, I, and I'll get back into this when I'm when I'm when I'm when I'm interested again, and when I'm when I'm you know want to get back into things. So here we are. So like I said, we got a packed show here. We got I'm going to talk about some G1. We're going to do some SummerSlam, and then we've got I I did a call for listener questions, and gee, I mean we've got a ton of them. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to all of them. I'm going to try my best. But every time we do a call for questions, you guys do an outstanding job sending in questions. So we'll try to get to as many as possible. Let me tell you about Mac Weldon. Listen, we've been telling you guys about Mac Weldon for weeks. Mac Weldon, let me tell you something. Have I, you, know, you guys know me. I will bury a sponsor, which is why, you know, sometimes we get sponsors on this show and they quickly disappear. Okay, but let me tell you about Mac Weldon, and I mean this. It's the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, undershirts, hoodies, sweatpants that you're ever going to wear. It really is, and I can tell you, I can attest to that. I wear Mac Weldon. I've purchased Mac Weldon. I wear it myself, and I'm Joe Lanza. You know I'm not full of shit. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't tell you I wore this stuff if I didn't, okay? You've heard us do other ad reads before where I completely buried these. Not, not Mac Weldon. It's a tremendous product. You want to talk about ease of shopping? Okay, I do man shopping. All right, I don't browse around stores. I don't ask for help. I know what I want to buy. I go to the store. I buy it, and I go home. And let me tell you something about MacWeldon.com. It is so easy to use. You go to this website. It is just set up for men, for simple man shopping. You know, you got the bar across the top for the categories. You find the underwear. You find the hoodies. You find the sweatpants, whatever it is you're looking for. You click on your color. You click on your size. You check out. I buy what I want to buy on Mac Weldon. I'm in and out of that website in less than 120 seconds. I can get in and out of that website in less than two minutes. And isn't that what you want? Ease of shopping? I know it's what I want. Very easy to shop at MacWeldon.com. It's the most comfortable menswear you're ever going to wear. And I got everything. They just rolled out a new line of shirts. It's great stuff. Okay. And here's the thing about Mack Weldon too. 
you buy your first pair of underwear from Mack Weldon. If you don't like it, it's too tight around your gooch, okay, whatever the case may be, right? It's a little too tight on your boys, whatever it is. You let them know. They'll let you keep the underwear, and they'll give you your money back. They'll give you your money back. Full refund, no questions asked if you're not happy with, the, with your first pair. I mean, you can't beat that. So you go to MacWeldon.com, you enter the code VOW, the promo code VOW, and you get 20% off. Boom. Then, if you don't like the underwear, you don't have to pay for it anyway. They're going to give you your money back, and you can keep them. But if you don't like them, I don't know what you're going to do with them. You could light them on fire, put them through a shredder, throw them in the garbage, doesn't matter. Or you keep wearing them. Hey, look, we all have our least favorite pair of underwear, you know, that we wear on laundry day. Right? You don't like these Mack Weldons? Okay, it becomes your least favorite pair. Either way, it's risk-free. But I'm telling you, you're going to like them. You're not going to ask for your money back. I guarantee it. That's Joe Ann's guarantee. MacWeldon.com. Promo code VOW. That's promo code VOW. The letter is VOW. 20% off. You don't like it? You get your money back. Let's talk about the G1. Like I said, over the last two days, I had fallen so far behind. I think I watched the first couple of days of the G1, and then I took my little sabbatical uh, from wrestling. And over the last two days, I binge-watched the entire tournament. I'm caught up to um, recording this on, uh, let's see, Friday night. August 5th, I've watched everything up to this point. By the time you listen to this, there might have been a show or two that occurred that I haven't seen. But as of Friday night the 5th, I'm uh, completely caught up now. And, you know, I had seen some of the chatter, some of the talk, people saying this was a disappointing G1. So I was like, all right, well, you know, I, you know I've got to watch it for myself and see. And, um, I thought, man, I got a lot of shows to watch, and if this if this tournament isn't living up, man, it's going to be a struggle to get through these shows. Because I wasn't going to do another podcast until I caught up on the G one, until I was caught up on the G one. Because that's just come on, I can't come on here and talk about wrestling without having seen the wrestling. So I was like, man, I was a little worried. I was like, ugh, these shows are going to be a chore. But let me tell you something. It took me two days to uh, to catch up on these shows, and this has been a tremendous tournament. I really don't know where the complaints are coming from. It's pretty much been exactly what we thought it would be when we previewed it, based on the field, the losses from last year, the additions, some of the people they dropped off, like Ujiro and Doc Gallows, who aren't in it, on the bottom end sort of balanced out the good losses, the AJ Styles, the Nakamura's, the Ibushis. And we kind of figured that this year's G1 would have a high floor, a higher floor than usual, and a lower ceiling. There'd probably be less super high-tier matches, but there'd be less trash as well. That's what we figured would happen. And I'll tell you, being completely caught up, that's exactly how it's played out. With the exception of Toru Yano, who has had, you know, just all of his matches are sub-five minutes and they're all Toru Yano matches. 
I mean, there's almost nothing in this tournament that has come in under three stars. Almost nothing. Maybe one or two matches, tops, that have been under three stars. Most of the matches in this tournament have fallen in in that three and a quarter to three and a half star range. Everything, which makes it a super easy to watch tournament. I had no problems getting through these shows the last two days. They were such easy watches because all of the matches are good. I mean, all of them. And there's been some great matches. There's been three or four great matches. Now, there's been less great stuff than in the prior three years, where there was just every night there was at least one match where you were just completely blown away. That hasn't been the case this year. There's been about three or four matches total that I would call memorable, blow-away matches, must-see matches. And, you know, normally when you're through night 12 or whatever it is over the last three years, there's been, you know, probably a dozen of those types of matches. So it's been exactly what we predicted and what most people predicted before it started. A very high floor, but a lower ceiling. I don't think that there's been a surefire match of the year contender yet, which through 12 nights, again, um, is very odd because over the last three years, there's been match of the year contenders, you know, right off the bat. There's been some stuff right below that level. For sure. And I'm going to go over some of the matches that I think have been some of the better matches in the tournament to this point. But overall, this has been a thoroughly satisfying tournament. And I completely disagree with people who think it's been disappointing. Maybe their expectations were set with the last three years in mind. Because from that perspective, sure. Um, you know, it hasn't been as good as the last three years. But with that said, uh, you know, they're also, where we haven't gotten the great the you know the, the super incredible high caliber great matches that we've gotten over the last few years we also haven't gotten the terrible stuff and i'm going to tell you why there's so few subpar workers in this tournament that the few limited guys that are in the tournament like your bad luck follies or your tamatangas or whoever your 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 tenzans you know, most of the time, just about every night, they're in there with a super high caliber worker who carry them to something that's pretty good. So you're not having those matchups of Doc Gallows versus Yujiro or Doc Gallows versus Bad Luck Fale or Yujiro versus Tenzan, you know, that you were getting in these past years that you had to suffer through before you got to the Kota Ibushi versus AJ Styles match in the main event. So we're not getting those you know, Doc Gallo's, you know, two-star specials and those Yujiro star-and-a-half matches against guys like Tenzan or whatever where there's nobody to carry things. We're not getting those this year. Every match has a high-caliber wrestler involved in it, which helps a lot in terms of making the shows watchable all the way through. I mean, I can't even... If you're unless you're just totally sick of Yano's act, 
after watching this entire tournament, I can't even recommend that you skip anything. I really can't. It's all very easy to watch and, 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 and very good. I mean, three stars seems to be the floor. So I've enjoyed it a lot. An excellent tournament. This is the year of the tournament. And to me, this has surpassed everything with the possible exception of the King of Gate. I think this tournament, this G1 tournament, uh, the King of Gate can match it with the super high-end stuff. And I think um, the Aita Tazawa time limit draw in particular is probably better than any match that's been in the G1 so far. And remember, the G1 hasn't hit Sumo Hall yet. And that's where the best stuff's going to happen. I mean, we've got a Tanahashi Okada match coming up. I mean, geez. And, and the final, which is always good. But I think in terms of super high-end stuff, the King of Gate can go toe-to-toe with this G1 so far to this point. But where I think the G1 has been better than the King of Gate was, is with your rank-and-file tournament matches. The King of Gate had a lot of stuff that was just kind of there. Everything in this G1 has been pretty good. And through 12 shows, in terms of four-star plus matches, I think, at least with my ratings, I've got um, New Japan has matched the King of... uh, The G1 has matched the King of Gate already, so it will easily surpass it by the time the tournament's over. But if you want to make the argument that King of Gate was better than... the G1, you can make that argument. I don't think you can make an argument for any of the other tournaments this year, and there have been some great tournaments. The best of the Super Juniors was the best, best of the Super Juniors in years. The G1 has blown that away. Blown it away. The Strong Climb was an excellent tournament. I praise that up and down on this show. The G1 has blown so far past the Strong Climb, I don't even think, it's not even close. Champion Carnival was a nice little tournament. But there was a lot of trash in the Champion Carnival. There's no trash in this tournament. And I think the high-end stuff in this tournament, uh, there's been more high-end stuff in the G1 than there was in the Champion Carnival. So I think it's blown past. Those, and those were good tournaments. Best of Super Juniors and Strong Climb and, and, and Champion Carnival. Those were good tournaments. G1 has been better than those tournaments. If you're being fair about it, it's been better than those tournaments. I think it's neck and neck with King of Gate, and I think it'll surpass it by the end. I Honestly, I think it's been better than the King of Gate already. But I can accept that. I think that's an acceptable argument. I really do. And, you know, we'll see how the Cruiserweight Classic turns out, because I think now that a lot of the fat's been cut from that tournament, now that your Ho-Ho Luns are... Well, actually, he's still in it, unfortunately. Um, in terms of non-spoiled stuff. You know, he's alive in the next round. That's set to air. But other than Ho-Ho Lun, I mean, they've cut a lot of the fat. And, you know, we've really gotten down to the super talented guys. So the Cruiserweight Classic could sneak in there for sure. So that's incomplete. So we don't know how that's going to turn out. But, you know, I think this G1, I was pleasantly surprised. I wasn't expecting it to be nearly this good. I'll tell you, the only person, and and the the only person that gave me faith that this thing was going to be better than a lot of people were saying was Alan. Alan 4L, man. Alan Cunahan. He's been bragging about this thing, and I said, you know what? My tastes are in tune with Alan, 
And Alan has been the one dissenting voice who's saying, no, man, this tournament rules. And you know what? Alan's right. This tournament does rule. In terms of top performers so far, I think Naomichi Marafuji has been the MVP of the tournament so far. Not only has he been in two or three of my top five matches, but on a match-by-match basis, this guy's performances are just off the charts. He's doing all of the little things, and he's been so good here. And I knew he would be. I told you guys for weeks, Marafuji is going to shut a lot of people up in the same way that Michael Elgin did last year. And he has. Shh, 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 shh. Listen. Everybody listen. Do you hear that? Listen, listen. I don't hear it either. You know what you don't hear? The Marafuji haters. You can't hear them. Because they're gone. You can't find them. They're hiding under rocks because this guy's been so good in this thing. That sound you don't hear is people picking on Marafuji. He elginned all of his haters. He's been so good in this thing that you, that, that you can't hear him anymore. You can't find these guys with a search party who were ripping Marafuji before this thing. Hey, listen, it feels good to be right. And I nailed this one too, okay? I knew, you know, I knew it. Listen, here's, what, here's the thing with Marafuji, okay? This is a guy who was a great wrestler for a very long time. And then he went on a slow, he's been on this slow decline, stale matches, stale style. But the thing that people underestimate, You don't forget how to wrestle. And he's still a young man. And you put him in a position to work big matches in front of good crowds in the number one company in Japan. And he's going to be motivated. And these are, I say this all the time, these guys are human beings. Motivation matters. He feels like he can sink his teeth into something here. Instead of working in front of, you know, a half-empty Corican Hall against, you know, Takeshi Segura and another, you know, same old, same old in Noah. Now he's working against fresh opponents, great opponents, packed crowds, important shows, main events. You didn't think this guy was going to deliver? I mean, come on. Of course he was going to deliver. He's a great wrestler. He didn't forget how to work. He's motivated. He's motivated. It matters. It makes a difference. Night one, right out of the gate against Okada. I still think that's the the, the, the second or third best match of the entire tournament. I mean, what a story they told. The match against Ishii on the 28th. Again, one of the three best matches of the entire tournament. Just a masterful match against Ishii. If you haven't seen that match, you have to go out of your way to see it. The Ishii-Marafuji match. The match against Bad Luck Fale. Okay? That's not going to make any uh, match of the year lists. But my God, Marafuji was so good in this match. 
His kicks and his knee strikes just weren't working against the big guy. And the look on his face, he was stunned. He's having all this success in the tournament with these knee strikes and these kicks. It didn't work against Fale. The storytelling and the psychology in that match was tremendous. The match against Sonata, again, you're not going to find it on any match of the year lists. It wasn't as good as the Okada match or the Ishii match. But my God, was it a great match. And both of those guys were tremendous. The story there, Sonata, too quick for Marafuji's strikes. Ducking and parrying and avoiding. Marafuji was having trouble landing the knees and the kicks. And they went out there and had a tremendous match for the time that they were given. And it made me want to see a main event between the two. It made me want to see them get 20 to 25 minutes. On a, on a, on a match-by-match basis, Marafuji has been the best worker in this tournament. And this is a tournament where I've loved what Ishii has done. And I think Ishii is the best wrestler in the world. And he's been great in this tournament. But Marafuji's been better. I think Marafuji so far has been the best worker and the MVP of this tournament. Ishii right on his heels. My top matches so far in the tournament, the best match in this tournament still, to me, is Tanahashi Sonata from the first night. Then I'd go with um, probably the Ishii-Marafuji match and then the Marafuji-Okada match. Those are my top three. Those are my top three matches of the tournament. Uh, My fourth match would probably be Elgin Omega from the 30th. I've preferred Block A. I'm a Block A guy. Tanahashi, Okada, Marafuji, Ishii, these guys have all killed it. I've really enjoyed Block A. Block B's been good too. But it took Naito a while to get into a groove. Omega was spotty early on, but I think he's come on strong and had some excellent performances. Shibata, he, you know, Shibata's a guy who's disappointed me. The two biggest disappointments in this tournament to me are the former tag team partners. I guess, yeah, I guess the former, I guess I can call them former tag team partners now that Goto is in chaos. But Goto and Shibata have been disappointing to me. Shibata's had some good matches. I enjoyed his match against Naito. I enjoyed his match against Elgin. But Shibata has had much better G1s in the past. He Shibata has not had anything resembling a match of the year contender, or one of the better matches in the tournament. And that's disappointing, because this is Katsuyori Shibata, and he's great. And I think he's underperformed. I think Goto has underperformed. Although I will say this. I loved the Okada-Goto match on the 25th that no one else seemed to like. I loved it. That's That's in my top five right now. That's probably my fourth, my number four match right now. No, that's my number five match. I gave you four already. Right? Didn't I? No, I didn't. I'll give you my top five. Tanahashi Sonata. It's my number one match. Uh, Marafuji Ishii. Marafuji Okada. Okada Goto. And then uh, 
uh, the Elgin Omega match. That's my top five. The match that I'm missing is Tanahashi versus Ishii, which Dave Meltzer gave uh, four and three quarters, and people are, that's a lot of people's top match. I, I don't know, man. That's outside of my top five right now, Tanahashi Ishii. It was a great match. Don't get me wrong. I like the other five matches I named better. I really do. I thought Okada Goto was better. I thought Elgin Omega was better. And I have to put a disclaimer here. I have to rewatch the Naito Elgin match that people are going crazy for because I watched it late at night and I was dozing off and falling asleep and I didn't rate it. I have to rewatch it and give it a fair shot. Because I, everyone goes through that. You try to watch wrestling, you're dozing off. I don't have a good feel for that match. I have to go rewatch it. Everyone tells me it's great though. So my top two performers are Marafuji and Ishii. Uh, I think Tanahashi's been excellent. I've loved Okada's work in this tournament. The match against Makabe was a big shocker for me because he Okada really showed a vicious, aggressive side against Makabe where he was calling for Makabe to, to hit him and attack him. I was into that. Naito has come on as of late. Oh, some of Omega's work, I tell you. Kenny Omega, oh man. This guy's an artist in the ring. I mean, some of his performances in this in this tournament, when he's being serious and he's not being goofy, um, some of the things he does are just next level and, and just just such creative work. The Shibata match in particular, uh, in, in particular the post-match of the Shibata match where he lost, and he really, the way he sold that loss, he really put over the idea that for all of his antics and his shit talk that he's taking this seriously and that that loss gutted him to lose to Shibata because he really he went for that one winged angel over and over and over he couldn't get the job done Shibata choked him out gave him the penalty kick and he really put over the idea in the post-match that he just was not good enough to beat Shibata and it was eating him alive Kenny Omega is a great pro wrestler he's great And he really excels at the little things. I thought the Elgin match was his best match, but the Shibata match may have been his best performance. And he also had a great match against Hanma. So overall, through 12 nights, I've got, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5... 13, 14, 15, 16. I've got 18 matches at four stars or better through 12 nights. And that's well behind the pace of the past three years. 18 matches at four stars or better. And a lot of them are lower end. Four on the dot, four and a quarter. Very few at four and a half or higher. I'll tell you exactly what I've got at four and a half or higher. Tanahashi Sonata. Marafuji Okada and Ishii Marafuji. That's it. I've got those three matches at four and a half. I've got nothing at four or three quarters or higher. Everything else is four and a quarter or four. Mostly four. 
So that's well behind the pace of the previous three years. But the difference is almost nothing has been below three stars in this tournament. So I, you know, I think this, I, you know what I think a lot of it is, and this is a question that was sent in that, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. There's so many people that are so sick about hearing about how good New Japan is that they've been waiting for a G1 to not be awesome so that they can tear it down and tear it apart. And uh, they've seen this as their opportunity. But, you know, as I've gone through and watched these matches and, and have been fair about it, this has been a super enjoyable tournament with a lot of great stuff. We're still waiting for that match of the year contender, in my opinion. I think Tanahashi Okada has a real good shot, obviously. Look, these guys have had, what, seven matches or whatever it is. They've all been great. All of them. I think I had, you know, three of them were five-star matches, in my opinion. The Invasion Attack match and two of the Wrestle Kingdom matches. Uh, the, The match from this year's Wrestle Kingdom is still my top match of the year. Hasn't been surpassed by anything I've seen yet this year. It's one of the best matches I've ever seen, in fact. The match they had at Wrestle Kingdom this year to me, is one of the five best matches I've ever seen. And, you know, they've done a great job in giving it a little bit of juice with this, turning this, you know, this Tanahashi the Aces back thing into storyline. Okada, you know, the Okada's annoyed at this. He's like, hey, look, I beat this guy. Enough of this, Omni Ace. And I'm going to beat him again. Oh, so I'm excited about that. Tanahashi Okada's coming up. I mean, geez. It's going to be awesome. Sumo Hall, sold out. Tanahashi Okada. You can't get into that. I mean, geez. I, you know, I don't know if you come up with a better match in wrestling right now to get juiced up for. With their proven history of how great they work together and how great their matches have been. G1, Sumo Hall. Sold out? I mean, geez. You can't fantasy book a better match than that. So there's a lot to look forward to here. My man Kojima is going to beat Jay Lethal for that ROH world title. It's Sumo Hall. Speaking of which, I've had enough of Tenzon. Okay, this is where I turn heel. He had a nice little match against Ishii on the first night. Wasn't nearly as good as the Tanahashi-Sonata match or the Marafuji-Okada match. People are nuts who are saying that Ishii Tenzon match was the best match that night. It wasn't. I gave it four stars. It's a good match. Third best match of the night, though. Tenzon has done nothing since that match. And his body is falling apart. I've had enough of Tenzon. Here's the thing. I've never been a big Tenzon fan. Even at his peak, I was never a big Tenzon fan. I just never was. He just never connected with me. I have a lot of respect for her, uh, for Tenzon. I really do. Um, and I like the guy. I've just never been a huge fan of his work. And um, he won his first couple matches and then just went on a long losing streak. They didn't even bother doing a tease of this guy winning the thing. Um, and honestly, I'm glad that they didn't because he looks like shit the further this thing moves along. I mean, he came into it all fired up and had some good performances early. And then he just completely fell off a cliff. I've had enough of Tenzon. I, I, you know, he needs to go to Nakanishi land and not come back. 
I'm glad this is his last G1 for a number of reasons. Number one, the poor guy physically can't, ha- can't hold up. We've seen him fall apart in G1s before, and his body's falling apart again. He doesn't need to go through this anymore. He's had a great career. You know, if New Japan had a Hall of Fame, he's a first ballot New Japan Hall of Famer. He's a borderline pro wrestling Hall of Famer. He's had a great career. He can still be a competent tag worker. I don't want to see him in G. I'm glad this is his last G1. And I'm also, from that perspective, because I don't want to see the guy get hurt. It's painful watching this guy. And from the other perspective, his matches stink. You know, it's totally dependent on the other guy to carry him at this point. Okada did a great job carrying this guy. Everyone he's been there with has had to carry this guy on his ba- on their backs. His performances just aren't good. He's had all of the lower end matches in this tournament have mostly been Tenzon matches. They've all been if you throw Yano out, you can't really rate the Yano matches. They're not they're just they're they're spectacles. If you throw out the Yano matches, Tenzon has had the low you know, the lowest level mat the, the low, in this tournament. Because Tamatanga started poorly, but he's had some good matches. The Okada match was really good. Um, you know, so it's like uh, Yoshihashi, as we figured, was has been excellent. You know, Tenzan's been arguably the worst performer in the tournament. Had enough of Tenzan. No more Tenzan. The hourglass beats everybody. That's the opponent nobody beats, okay? His time is up. Get him out of here. I'm tired of watching this guy. Struggle his way through these It's painful. You know, it, it, it would have been so much better with Kojima. God, Kojima in that A block? My God. And what we get? We got a Tenzan Ishii match on night one that ended up being an excellent match. That's all we got out of this. Kojima would have had great matches every night. And it's a shame. You know, it really is. Who knows what, you know, he might fall off a cliff before next year. So there's your little G1 roundup. And we'll talk a little bit more about the G1 when we get to the listener questions. Because there's some questions that relate to the G1. In case I forgot some of my talking points, I'm sure we'll get to them then. What I want to talk about, I want to transition to WWE. Because I am so excited for this SummerSlam show. I think they've done a tremendous job building up this SummerSlam show. I'm I'm pumped up for just about every match that they've announced so far. I, I they've done a great job. I think the brand split, you know, early on we knew it would work. It's 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 long term if they'll you know if they get bored with it or we know what happened last time. But so far the shows do feel different. I got to tell you that they've managed to give the shows different feels. And I think splitting the rosters has given, has been very beneficial 
to certain people on the roster who've gotten more promo time, gotten more ring time, gotten a chance to shine, and have gotten chances to sink their... Like I talked about Marafuji. There's people who have... Like Apollo Crews is a great example. He's looked his best in this company, even going back to the NXT days, the last two weeks on SmackDown. He's been given something to do that matters. And these are human beings. Motivation is important. And he feels motivated. He's getting a little push here. He won that Battle Royal on the first SmackDown, you know? And he's going to be on the pay-per-view, taking on The Miz. And he's done his best work. He's looked real good the last two weeks on SmackDown. And man, that's the sixth or seventh match from the top on this loaded show. So, for the Universal title, we've got Finn Balor versus Seth Rollins. And I'll tell you, how good is that going to be? I mean, I have a feeling these guys are going to work very well together. Very similar styles. Finn Balor, you know he's going to be motivated to go out there and have a great match. And no one works harder than that guy. I mean, you know, go read the house show reports. This guy busts his ass every night. He don't take nights off. You don't think he's going to be pumped up for a big-time matchup match like this against Seth Rollins? Whether he's winning, whether they tell him he's winning or they tell him Finn Balor is going to go out there and kill himself in this match. And Seth Rollins always puts in great performance. It's going to be a great match. And they had a great segment last week on Raw. And Bowler had two weeks ago on Raw had a great debut on the main roster. Worked his ass off and won that four-way, and then he had a great main event against Ro- against Roman Reigns. Won it clean in the middle. Great job. Great job by this company. Putting him over strong right out of the gate on that first Raw and putting him in this match here. We're seeing guys get opportunities here. This is great stuff. Now look, I know this company could yank the rug out from underneath. Listen, I always say it, arm's length, man. You gotta keep this company at arm's length. But it's hard not to be excited about this Balor-Seth Rollins match. And you know, enough of this Crimea River stuff with Roman Reigns, okay? First of all, is he really being punished? I mean, he's lost some matches. But look at it from this perspective. The guy fails a wellness fight. He gets popped for a wellness violation before this huge three-way match involving the Shield members. They keep him in the match. They let him work the main event of the pay-per-view. They don't yank him from the match. And yes, he lost. And he took the fall. But then the next night on Raw, he wins a four-way match. And then they put him in the main event. And he works the main event on the pay-per-view. Then he wins a big match on Raw. And then he works the main event on Raw. And yeah, he lost to Finn Balor. But that was the right call. You want to put the new guy over. So he's dropping some key matches, but he worked main events both nights. 
And yes, it looks like he's headed towards a match with Rusev, which is going to be a great match, by the way. Roman Reigns versus Rusev. Finally, they give Rusev something to sink his teeth into. Rusev, this poor guy. I mean, geez. When the best opponent you've been given since he won the title from Callisto, which was a great feud and a great title change. And the best opponent he's been given is, is, is Zack Ryder, who everybody sees as a jobber. He can go a little bit, but people see him as a jobber and not as a believable contender. And then they're putting him in there with people with like Titus O'Neil, who's terrible. But Rusev has managed to stay interesting, despite the fact that they've just given him this terrible lineup of opponents. And now finally they give him a, a, an opponent with some juice, a good opponent. In Roman Reigns. I mean, it's going to be a tremendous match. And it's like 6th or 7th from the top on this show. This SummerSlam is stacked. But cry me a river with Roman Reigns, okay? This is a guy who got popped for a wellness violation. Can't get over to save his life. Roman Reigns cannot get over to save his life. They've done everything in their power to get this guy over. They've been behind him for years, and he can't get over to save his life. Then he gets popped for a wellness violation. It's about time they've pumped the brakes a little bit on Roman Reigns and given some other people a shot. Let's see what Finn Balor can do with a push. Let's see what Dean Ambrose can do when you give him a real opportunity with the title because he's not losing to Dolph Ziggler. And we'll get to that in a minute because I love the build for that match. I know I'm all over the place here. Bear with me. Let's see what Seth Rollins can do coming back here. Because Roman has had opportunities for years. For years now. Going on two years. And he's dropped the ball over and over again. The guy can't get over to save his life. And then he got popped for a wellness. You know what? It's not the worst thing in the world that he's working the upper mid-card now. In fact, I think he's lucky he's working the upper mid-card. He's very lucky that he worked main events two nights in a row when he came back. And he's still in the and he was still in the mix. If Roman Reigns gets if they slide him down the card, the only person Roman Reigns has to blame is himself. He hasn't gotten over. And he got popped for wellness. Enough is enough. And listen, you guys know where I stand with Roman Reigns. I've been screaming it since the shield. His ceiling is Randy Orton. His ceiling is Randy Orton. A guy who's a star but is presented as a much bigger star than he ever really is, uh, than he ever really was, in Randy Orton's case, or he ever really is in Roman Reigns' case. He's, he's, that's his ceiling. They'll tell you that he's a, an enormous superstar, but he really isn't, uh, Randy Orton. 
there's no data that suggests that he's ever been a, a, a big-time star. That's what Roman Reigns' future is. He's simply not very likable. Well, why don't fans give him a chance? Why? If fans don't like him, they don't like him. What is this bullshit that fans have to give people a chance? If they don't like him, they don't like him. That's how this works, people. He's not likable. There's something about him. Everything about him, it's like he should be this megastar. But there's something about him innately that isn't likable. He can't get over the hump. And no matter what they try, he gets booed out of the building. It is what it is, man. They're pumping the brakes a little, and it's about time. I don't know if Finn Balor is going to be a big star, but fuck, let's give it a shot. I don't know if Dean Ambrose is going to work if they run with Dean Ambrose, but let's give it a, let's give these other people a shot. Instead of playing second fiddle to this guy who gets booed out of every building. And is never going to get over at that level. And I know that annoys people. You guys want to tell me I'm wrong so bad, but you can't. You're waiting. You're, there's so many of you that listen to this show. That are waiting for the day that this guy becomes a megastar. So you can stick it to me. Well, keep waiting. Because it's not going to happen. I nailed this guy two years ago. And you know who has a chance to be the biggest star on this roster? If they, if they give him a chance as a babyface? Kevin Owens. Kevin Owens is just... It, it, they have this guy right under their nose. He would blow so... Fu- he would blow past Roman Reigns... In a second, if they gave him the ball as a babyface. Oh my god, it wouldn't even be close. He's so much more likable than Roman Reigns. Fans would get behind him, and they wouldn't have to change a damn thing except except make him a babyface. His current character would work as a babyface. The only thing he'd have to change is he'd have to stop backing away from fights. He has so much more star potential than Roman Reigns. It's not even close. And it's obvious. It's so obvious, too. But he doesn't look... As long as Vince McMahon is calling the shots and is the booker. That's what he is. He's the booker. As long as he's calling the shots, it's never going to happen. Because you know he doesn't see Kevin Owens... As the top star. He's not the guy that he wants to send to the Today Show. He wants to send Roman Reigns. He's not the guy that he wants to put, you know, front and center, uh, you know, to do media and everything. He wants to do that with Roman Reigns. Because Roman Reigns looks the part. He just isn't likable. Kevin Owens doesn't look the part, but he's likable. My God, he's a baby face waiting to explode. To explode. He's the total package. You know, fuck if that guy's not Stone Cold Steve Austin as a babyface. You know, maybe he wouldn't get to those heights, but that's the type of character he'd be. This anti-hero, he'd be great. 
He'd blow right past Roman Reigns. God, he has more potential than that guy. Not even close. And he comes, and he's unnatural. Roman Reigns is so unnatural, which is probably why he's not likable. He's playing a part. So Roman Reigns, you know, takes a, you know, slides down the card a little and will face Rusev. And hey, man, look, that'll be a great match. At the end of the day, this might be, look, hitting the, you know, trying something different with Roman Reigns. Look, that might be helpful too. I mean, I don't think it'll make a difference. I really don't, but it's worth a shot. Because keeping him at the top when people don't want him there, that clearly wasn't working and was never going to work. So we've got Baller Seth Rollins, which I think is going to be a great match. We've got Roman Reigns versus Rusev, which I think is going to be a great match. And I want to talk a little bit about Dean Ambrose, Dolph Ziggler, because I think, look, Ziggler's not going to win. But this build, the build for this match has been so good. How can you not be excited about this? How great has Dean Ambrose been the last couple of weeks? Again, another example of a guy. You make him the focus of the show. You give him mic time. He doesn't have Roman Reigns looming over his shoulder. He is coming off as such a great champion over the last... It's only been two weeks. You can't, get, you can't go crazy. But my God, is he coming off great as a champion. And I really think that they mistimed Dean Ambrose. I think they had windows with him, and they blew it because they were too busy, you know, bending over backwards to try to get Roman Reigns over, that they, they missed the windows with Dean Ambrose. But my God, he's not doing the rodeo clown routine. And, and you see how great this guy can be. And maybe they can rehab him all the way because he's done a great job. His promos have been tremendous. That opening promo on SmackDown this week with Ambrose and Ziggler was tremendous stuff. Man, did that fire me up for this match. I love this story. Dolph Ziggler keeps coming out here talking about stealing shows and putting in great performances. And Dean Ambrose says, that's your problem, man. I'm out here worried about winning matches. They've turned this in on it. They've, they've made this into this, what they're doing in this company lately. Okay? And they've done it with the uh, Cena Styles build as well. Is they've got these reality-based storylines going on. And they're easy to suspend your disbelief for. They're easy to buy into as a fan. Ambrose is telling it like it is about Dolph. All of the legitimate complaints that people have had about him. How saying stealing the show and putting in great performances doesn't make sense in the context of wrestling. He should be talking about winning matches. Well, that's what Dean Ambrose is telling this guy. He's like, that's your problem, Dolph. I don't care about stealing shows. I care about winning matches and I got and, and defending this championship. And Dolph's promo was tremendous too. Man, it's good stuff. Cena Styles. My God, how good was that segment later on in the show on SmackDown? SmackDown was a great show this week. Better than Raw. Raw blew away SmackDown week one. SmackDown blew away Raw this past week. I thought Raw was an average show. I thought SmackDown was a killer show. Without great matches even. It was all the other stuff that was great. Cena telling it like it is to Styles. It's easy to buy into. 
He's like, I live and breathe this company. And he does. So it's believable. You know he's telling the truth. And he says, AJ, if you fail, no, no problem, man. You're a great wrestler. Off to the next place to be a great wrestler. You'll do just fine. You don't love this place like I do. Man, I mean, he's just speaking the truth. So it's easy to buy into. It's reality-based. That's what the modern fan wants. The modern fan doesn't want heel authority figures. The modern fan doesn't want the show built around heel authority figures and unrealistic storylines and Stephanie McMahon just fucking sassing everybody and emasculating the entire roster and Triple H, you know, doing the same thing. People don't want that shit right in this era. We want reality-based. And that's what they're giving us here. And how great is Cena Styles going to be? I guess SummerSlam has a chance to be show of the year on paper. It really does. It has, it has a chance to be the pro wrestling show of the year on paper. Bowler Rollins, Ambrose Ziggler with the great build. And I'll tell you what. Again, the theme of today's show, motivation. Dolph Ziggler is going to be motivated to have a great match against Dean Ambrose. And Dean Ambrose is going to be motivated to have a great Dean Ambrose is getting the ball, and he's got a chance to run with it. We know he's not the best worker, but he could have great matches. I thought he was the best worker in the company in the first three months of the year. And then you have Cena Styles. It's going to be a great match. Rusev Roman Reigns. Sasha Banks Charlotte. I have no problem with them changing the title on Raw a couple weeks ago. I think that was a smart move. They were going to save it for SummerSlam. I don't mind doing it on the Raw. Felt like a big moment. I know it's a little awkward. Now you have the heel and the chase position, but I think that's okay because it's, you know, Charlotte deserves a rematch being the former champion, and especially as long as she's held the title. So the story makes sense. And that can be a great match. They've had great matches in the past. They had a very good match on Raw. And now Sasha's finally getting her chance. This is a loaded show, and a lot of these matches are going to need time. And I don't know how much time they're going to give Sasha and Charlotte. But man, if they somehow get 20 minutes, you know, you know they're gonna. They've had they've wrestled each other a million times. They've had great house show matches. They've had great matches in NXT. Again, this is another match that has a great chance to be uh, a very a very good match. The Miz is gonna face Apollo Cruz, and then we've got Brock Lesnar, Randy Orton. They've shot a couple of very good angles. I was. Look, having guys cross over onto the other roster this soon, but there was no way to avoid it here because this match was made before the brand split. And they have to build the match. But I think they've done a good job treating each guy like they're invaders. They've come in through the crowd. And, you know, they've done the little things... You know, they haven't had these guys come down the ramp to attack each other, which would be a big mistake. And they, 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 it's impossible. You have to build the match somehow. So I give them a pass. And I think they've done a good job with the you know having these guys positioned as invading each other's shell. I mean, this could be a great match too. I don't know if it will be. 
I'm more confident in the other matches I've talked about in being great matches than Lesnar Orton. But Lesnar's another guy who works his ass off. He'll go out there and try to have a great match. It's a big match for Orton, too. He'll be motivated. This show looks great. I tell you, man. And they're all singles matches. I'm sure they'll add, you know, maybe New Day will have something. Maybe they'll shoehorn Enzo on there somehow. I, I don't know. But, you know, there's seven singles matches that I just talked about. I mean, this is going to be a long show. Probably over four hours. But if you're going to give me quality like this, I mean, this is one of the most stacked on-paper lineups you're going to see for a pro wrestling show. I mean, you know, this is more stacked on paper than Wrestle Kingdom was. And that was a stacked show on paper. So I'm all pumped up for SummerSlam. And I think the build has been tremendous. And I think the WWE TV over the last two weeks has been tremendous. Raw was great two weeks ago and SmackDown was great this week. And, I, you know, I'm excited about WWE TV. When's the last time you were excited about Raw every week? Look, I don't know how long this is going to last. Enjoy it while you can. Enjoy it while you can. So I know SummerSlam is going to be great. And the TakeOver that weekend is going to be great, too. All right, I'm going to take a break. And we're going to come back and uh, do some of these listener questions. So uh, hang in there. We'll be right back. So let's do a couple quick hit topics before we get into the um, the listener questions portion of the show. Because there was a couple more topics I wanted to touch on. Maybe not go into uh, super in-depth about. But uh, there were a few topics that I thought deserved some attention. And uh, let's do those now. First of all, this has been the year of the tournament. And... We've had the return of the Super J Cup. We've had the Cruiserweight Classic. We've had, uh, like I talked about earlier, a great um, strong climb, a great King of Gate with an all-new format um, with, uh, with blocks instead of being single elimination. Uh, Champion Carnival was a good tournament. The best of the Super Juniors was the best Super, best of Super Juniors in years and had the classic match that, that you know, uh, the instant classic with Ricochet versus Will Ospreay that people will be talking about for decades. Um, so this really has been the year of the tournament. And some of these tournaments, because uh, there's been so many great tournaments this year, are just flying under the radar and haven't gotten the proper attention. And there's one tournament in particular that is kicking off this weekend, which by the time a lot of you listen to this, it will have started. And, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a tournament that uh, we, that in my opinion, um, and the opinion of many others, uh, you know, we haven't given enough attention to on this show. In fact, I don't think we've talked about this tournament at all. And uh, there's been some people, uh, you know, critical of that, that, that we haven't talked about this tournament. So, um, I thought it was only fair to give a few minutes in the year of the tournament to a tournament that that perhaps hasn't gotten its due on the Voices of Wrestling uh, flagship podcast and involves uh, some of the best wrestlers in the world. So uh, there's no reason that this tournament shouldn't be talked about. Um, so, you know, people have asked and, and, you know, I'm a man of the people. So I'll, I'll give it a little bit of attention. 
I want to talk about the Dragon Gate Summer Adventure Tag League. The Dragon Gate Summer Adventure Tag League kicks off on the 6th with a double header from Shinjuku Face in Tokyo. Remember, Cork and Hall going under some uh, earthquake repairs. I believe it's earthquake repairs this summer. So a lot of uh, companies, they got to run somewhere else. Shinjuku Face, a little bit of a smaller building. But a double header available for purchase on the Nico Nico. And the tournament will kick off on the 6th. Back-to-back shows. Five hours apart. Three-hour show, a little bit of a break. Another three-hour show. But, you know, Dragon Gate coming off a fantastic King of Gate. And now they've got this Summer Adventure Tag League, which promises to be a tremendous tournament as well. And this runs all through the first half of August. And I'll quickly go over the blocks here. The A block has... Jimmy Susumu and Jimmy Kajitora. Genki Horiguchi and uh, Ryu Jimmy Saito. Masato Yoshino and T-Hawk. Takahiro Yamamura and Kaito Ishida. These are the two youngsters, these two rookies, who have done a tremendous job this year. A lot of potential there, and they're so young. Uh, Naruki Doi and Brother Yashi. Brother Yashi coming under fire last week on the show. Case Low cut the promo on Brother Yashi. Um, a lot of people are sick of Brother Yashi. He's not really up to the Dragon Gate working standard. I do agree with that. I don't mind him, though, in this position, teaming with Naruki Doi. He's sort of stepping into the old Yamato role. Okay? Um, Yamato, of course, did the big face turn, and that, you know, he, he, he defeated Shingo for the title. Um, after the long uh, tag team run he had with Doi, they were arguably the best tag team in the world at, the, at that time. So Brother Yashi steps in. You know what Brother Yashi is like? I'll tell you what he's like. You know, I like to compare Dragon Gate to high school. Okay, a few weeks ago we did the whole Dragon Gate as a you know, high school deal. Brother Yashi is like KZ's older brother who like dropped out of Votek and got a girl pregnant and left town for a few years. And, uh, like, he went out for a pack of smokes and abandoned his family and returned to town. And, uh, you know, after years and years, and now here he is. You know, he left a, he left his old lady and his, and his uh, three-year-old baby behind. Because he's that kind of grimy character, you know? He didn't go to Dragon Gate High School. He went to the Votech across town because he was always, like, a badass, you know? And he dropped out, of course, when he, after, you know, he knocked the girl up. And now he's back in town. And, of course, a guy like Naruki Doi would welcome him with open arms, because Doi's a piece of shit. And the final team in that block is Yasuke Santa Maria and L. Lindemann, the sentimental favorites in that block, with their love story that they have going on. B block, Yamato and BB Hulk, Akira Tazawa and Big R Shimizu. What a team there, huh? Dragon Kid and Eita. Shingo and Cyber Kong. We'll know who's uh, taking the falls for that team. Cyber Kong is the pin eater on that unit. That little team there. Uh, Shima and Gamma, of course. And uh, the best bros. And Masaki Mochizuki teams with Futa Nakamura, who we who uh, Case and Rich talked about last week. This Futa Nakamura has superstar written all over him. 
I mean, this guy, this kid looks, I mean, he just looks the business and he can already work. He just, I, my God. I mean, if you haven't seen this guy go out of your way and he's only going to make tape a couple of times in this tournament, but make sure you go out of your way to see the match. And he's only made tape a few times. I think he's only been on tape two or three times. Uh, since he debuted, but my God, this guy, uh, let me tell you something. Dragon Gate does such a good job with these young wrestlers and they're debuting two more on the sixth and on the second Shinjuku face show, the second of the double headers, there's an exhibition match with two more new guys. Um, Hyo Watanabe and Katsumi Takashima. So they got two more rookies coming through the pipe. No company is loaded with as much young talent as this company is. And that includes WWE that has a performance center with 100 people in it. I mean, Dragon Gate just pumps these guys out and they're all great. Which is why they just keep chugging along and they stay in their lane and they do great business. And they're just loaded with talent. This is Nakamura, let me tell you. Also announced as I was recording this show. Akira Tozawa is getting a title shot against Yamato in Osaka. Let me try to find the date for you. That could be a goodbye. That could be it. If he's headed to WWE, which we all expect that he is. Um, and my God, will that be a sad scene if that is indeed his goodbye. Um, you know, t- t- that's going to be a rough one for any Dragon Gate fan. Um, the tears will be flowing. Uh, it's it's going to, you know... Look, we all know it's inevitable. We all know he wants to be there. All his pals are there. But man, I, you know, that's going to be a tough one. You know, because that's a... Uh, that's a native guy too. It's not like you know Pac or Yuha Nation, who they all we all knew at some point was going to go back, uh, or we're going to end up in in, in WWE. Uh, th- this is a native guy and a very popular one and a very charismatic one, and someone who Western fans in particular um, who love. And it's going to be rough seeing him go. Now, I don't know if this is the case for sure, but it sure seems like him getting a title shot. And Osaka, of all places, you know, with all the rumors swirling, the date on that is September 22nd. Dangerous gate. Yamato defends against Akira Tozawa. Oh boy. That could be it for Tozawa. One other quick hitter before we get into the questions. I want to talk about TNA a little bit. Um, the impact number dropped again. They lost about 35,000 viewers this week, and they're back down to 315,000 viewers. Um, they've lost all of the momentum that they gained from the final deletion. And, uh, you know, uh, listen, far be it from me to, to say I told you so. But we came on this show the week of the final deletion when everyone was going crazy about the final deletion and myself and Rich were really the only two people brave enough to say that it was shit and that it was going to have a very limited shelf life and that it was akin to 
people slowing down on the highway to stare at a car crash. And then you look at the twisted metal and the, you know, bloodied bodies and you forget about it 30 seconds after you pull away. And that the final deletion was akin to something like Sharknado, where you're laughing at it and not with it. And that the real key, the real key to Final Deletion was not Final Deletion or Broken Matt Hardy, which has no legs, and I'm going to get into that in a second. But the real key to that was taking all of these people who were just dropping in for a week to see the absurdity of Final Deletion, the key was to take advantage of that by hooking them with the rest of your show and putting your best foot forward and getting people to say, you know what? I came for this goofy final deletion. But I liked it. I like what they're doing with this Bobby Lashley. Or, you know, I'm into this EC3. Or, wow, I mean, you know, this miracle Mike Bennett's got something. Or whatever the case may be. And that's where TNA failed. Because now they're right back to where they started before final deletion. And yeah, I understand the move to Thursday didn't help. And in my opinion, they should have held off the final deletion until the move to Thursday. I'm going to stand firm on that. I think it would have been smarter to do Final Deletion on the first Thursday show rather than the final Tuesday show. But the past is the past. And they did hold some of the viewers that second week, but now they're all gone. They've lost them all. Which was predictable because the broken Matt Hardy thing is utterly ridiculous. And it doesn't, it's like you, you get tired of it very quickly. Now he's biting people's ears off. I mean, it's just... Compare the buzz that Broken Matt Hardy was getting the week of the final deletion to now. No one's tweeting about dilapidated boats anymore. No one is tweeting about how great Broken Matt Hardy... People are tired of it. They got tired of it very quickly. Because it was goofy. It was Sharknado. It was a car crash on the side of the road. It didn't have any legs. And me and Rich took a beating for saying that on the show three or four weeks ago, whatever it was. Because we were so... Oh, you guys don't like it. You guys don't like fun. This is great. How can you not like it? All right, well, we told you people would tire, quickly tire of it, and all of you people did. We were right. And unfortunately, TNA didn't keep any of those new eyeballs with the rest of their show. Nothing on the show kept people around, which is unfortunate. It also doesn't help that I thought TNA was a much stronger show in the weeks leading up to Final Deletion than it was since Final Deletion. They really haven't put their best foot forward in terms of their shows, in my opinion. Um, I thought the show was a decent watchable show in the lead up to Final Deletion. I thought the Final Deletion show was okay. It had its moments. And in the last couple weeks, I really don't think we're very good. Especially in comparison to what they had been doing before. You know, the Bound for Glory tournament and all that. I don't think these shows have been all that great. And I could see why they've lost those viewers. So it was absolutely a temporary bump. The ratings are right back to normal. And if you look at Google, if you believe in Google Trends, and I tweeted this out a few times, if you believe in Google Trends at all, nobody cares about Broken Matt Hardy anymore. 
you guys could look on our timeline. I, we've got it up, or you can go do it yourself and look it up on the Google Trends. Go ahead and run Google Trends for Broken Matt Hardy, Impact Wrestling, and Final Deletion. Final Deletion was a thing for about two weeks. That's it. After that, Broken Matt Hardy is no longer a thing. Broken Matt Hardy and Impact Wrestling, you know, on Google Trends, are now below the levels they were at before Final Deletion. And the viewers are, are, they've lost all the viewers that they gained. Broken Matt Hardy is over. It lasted two weeks. It's goofy. The biggest mistake TNA can make now is just riding broken Matt Hardy because it, it it hasn't worked. You know, it, it's not. They, they've got to do something. They've got to get away from that and transition to whatever they're going to transition to now. And I thought Garrett Kidney nailed it in his impact review this week on the site, where you know it's broken Matt Hardy in order to be uh, to come back together and no longer be broken. He needs Jeff. And he absolutely, if he wins the Bound for Glory series, which he might, he should not win the title. Defeats the whole purpose of Broken Matt Hardy. He's broken because he doesn't have the title. If he then wins the title, how can you continue on with that? That'll be a huge mistake if he wins the title and then they continue on with that character. He needs to lose. So... Quick hitter on TNA there. Now we'll get into the listener questions. Avengers 23 wants to know, how does Lucha Underground's heavily taped and edited nature affect its matches for end-of-year consideration if it weren't an action-adventure drama with wrestling elements? Okay, so what he means is Lucha Underground has all these great matches, right? But... How do you work them into your end of your voting in terms of match of the year and things of that nature? Some of these matches are taped like we ran into this problem last year where some of the matches were taped the year before but didn't air until the current year, things of that nature. I do think it makes it tricky. But the thing with Lucha Underground is, you know, you got you kind of have to go by the air date, right? I mean, it's really, it's a, it's, it is a tricky deal, though, because they tape so far in advance. I mean, they'll tape stuff, and it doesn't air till six months later. So he's right. It does make it difficult. But I think you just, when it comes to Lucha Underground, you just, you got to go with the air date. You really do. Now, my whole thing, the second part of his question, the heavily taped and edited nature, I have a personal stance. I don't rate matches that I know are heavily edited. I just, I, I don't. Um, matches that are clipped or heavily edited, I, I don't I don't rate them. I don't give them the, you know, nobody cares about star ratings anyway, but I, I just, for my own personal purposes, I, I don't rate them. Um, so for that reason, I'll never vote a Lucha Underground match for a match of the year or anything like that because they're all clipped and heavily edited. But that's just me personally. I, that's just my stance. Avengers 23 wants to know, did you ever dip into EFED stuff in your youth? Rich did, I did not. 
Rich was a big EFED player. In fact, that's how he met Matt Cage, who he knows personally. I, I, they were both EFEDers uh, in, when they were kids. I never did that, though. I was never into that. What does the BOLA field look like in five years? Well, that's impossible to project because um, in five, five years is such a long time. There's a 16-year-old kid somewhere who will be in the Battle of Los Angeles five years from now who's like a junior in high school. You know what I mean? Like Will Ospreay was like 17 years old five years ago. So the Battle of Los Angeles field five years from now is probably going to be made up. uh, Half of the field will be people that you've never heard of today. They may not even be wrestlers yet. So that's impossible to plot out. And a lot of the people that are in it today will move on and no longer be, you know, working the indies in five years. Let's look at the Battle of Los Angeles. From five years ago. That would be 2000 and let's look at 2011. And do a little where are they now? I think that'd be fun. And I'm stalling because I just thought of it now. I didn't think of it before the show, so you're going to have to give me a second to pull it up. How many people, as you wait for me to pull it up, how many people in the 2011 Battle of Los Angeles do you guys think are in this year's? Let's find out. The 2011 Battle of Los Angeles, first of all, was an eight-man tournament. Eight men. And I can tell you, let's look at this. The winner was El Generico. He defeated Kevin Steen in the final. The other participants included Eddie Edwards, Willie Mack, Roderick Strong, Claudio Castagnoli, Dave Fit Finley, and Chris Hero, who since then has had a WWE run and is now back on the indies as arguably the best indie wrestler on the planet. And then think of the career paths of those other men who took place, who took part in the 2011 Battle of Los Angeles. So, I mean, Good luck trying to plot out what it's going to look like five years from now. Let's look at 2010. This, uh, an 18-man tournament. Right? Am I counting that right? Yeah, 8, 16, 18 men. The winner was Joey Ryan. This is 2010. Chris Hero, Claudio Castagnoli. Brandon Gatson, Akira Tazawa, Brandon Bonham, Roderick Strong, Austin Aries, Christopher Daniels, El Generico, Brian Cage, Rocky Romero, Ricochet, Paul London, Chuck Taylor, Ryan Taylor, and Matt and Nick Jackson. 
How about that? 2010. This may as well this may as well have been a thousand years ago. Brandon Bonham. Brandon Gatson. Who? So yeah, I mean you can't you can't plan you can't plot that out. Last question from Avengers 23. Would WWE do an invitational gimmick with women wrestlers after the success of the Cruiserweight Classic? I hope they do. I think that would be great. I think they should do it with the women. I think they should do the Dusty Classic Tag Tournament every year. And this time, show us every match. But sticking to the question, absolutely they should do it with the women. It's a tremendous idea. They should do it every year. And they should do the junior deal every year. Or maybe alternate years. Like Big Japan does the strong climb. And then the following year they do like the deathmatch tournament. And they alternate. Maybe alternate with the Cruiserweight Classic. And a women's deal. Or just do both every year. You have your own network. You got plenty of time to air the stuff. Cruiserweight Classic is doing very well on the network. If you check out the top 20 shows. If you follow that. On WWE Network News, a great website. The Cruiserweight Classic stuff does great. People are into it. So I would absolutely do a women's tournament. The problem is, the talent pool for female wrestlers is not deep at all. And that could be a problem. Because when you look at the Cruiserweight Classic, there have clearly been people who have been subpar. Whether it's your Anthony Bennett's, your Ho-Ho Lunds. Ho-Ho Lunds stinks. Okay, I get the whole Chinese thing. But he's terrible. Anthony Bennett wasn't good. Uh, Wheezy Woo wasn't good. It's been some other guy that weren't great. Um, you know, and the female talent pool is very shallow. Just look at the struggles that Ring of Honor has had with Women of Honor. There's no way that they can do 32 women. It would be, there'd be so much terrible talent that it would almost be an embarrassment. I don't think they can do it with 32 women. I really don't. Because WWE has so many, they already have so many of the talented women in the fold. I mean, I suppose they could do it if they use their own people. So let me take that back. If they loaded it up with their own people that they have in developmental, you could maybe piece it together. It'd still be hard to do 32. Just look at Women of Honor and how bad some of that talent is. And Ring of Honor, you know, they're taking a crack at some of the top indie people. You know, and there's a lot of people in Shimmer that WWE wouldn't touch. They, they can't just, they're not going to pluck everybody out of Japan. I, I, it, would be, it would be trickier to put together a women's tournament, especially 32 people. But should they do it? Absolutely. Uh, this person here wants to know, I always have to drop one of those in when we do questions. I got to do the Brian Alvarez. Book the 2016 Battle of Los Angeles. Predict the first round winners and what matches the second round semis and finals will be. I can't do that. First of all, it would take too long. Second of all, I don't follow PWG closely enough to do that. I don't have any feel for their booking. Um, I used to, I, I, when it comes to PWG, I drift in and out. Sometimes I follow it very closely. And then there's times like now where I'm down on it and I'm down on the, 
ordering the DVDs. It's, it's a pain in the ass. So I just I, I, I don't have a good feel for the booking. I wouldn't be able to do a good job with that, so I'm not going to waste anybody's time. Avengers 23 snuck back in here. This guy's sneaky. Will Akibono's Railroad ever hold another show? Or does it belong to the graveyard of dead Japanese indies? I think it will because it was pretty successful. They drew a nice crowd. So if it's going to be like Kenta Kabashi's, you know, uh, deal where he runs, you know, two or three shows a year or whatever, I don't see why not. If he tries to run a full-fledged promotion, he's going to have some problems. Next question from Avengers. Is Lucha or Joshi coverage Voices of Wrestling's biggest growth point? Well, that's a tricky one to answer. I don't think either one of them are our biggest growth point. The biggest growth point for the site is whatever the next big thing is. Um, the biggest growth point for us was we were very lucky that we started up the site right around the time that New Japan saw its resurgence. And I was a fan of New Japan at the time and and saw that that, that, that what was coming, especially with the successful um, Okada title victory at, at New Beginning in 2012. And I was bugging Rich and bugging Rich, you've got to start watching New Japan. you got to get, this is the next big thing. This is what we need. We got to get on top of this. We got to be ahead of the curve. And then Rich jumped in and he enjoyed it. And Rich was a guy who would watch super hyped Japanese matches from time to time when I would recommend them, but wasn't indulged in the scene, you know, by any means, not not nearly like he is now. Um, and I, I, I really convinced him that he needed to get into New Japan, um, not only because it was a burgeoning product that was really showing signs in 2011 of, of really um, becoming something special. And then in 2012, it started showing serious business signs and aesthetic signs of really being the next big thing. And, and we were lucky in that that's right around the time we started the site and started this podcast. And we grew with New Japan because we hopped on knowing that that was going to catch on big. And it did. And, you know... People enjoyed our coverage of it, and that first, uh, and it was really the 2013 G1, the first one that was on Ustream, where you know we really hammered home the coverage, and we're one of the few English language sites that were doing super in-depth coverage of the G1 in 2013, and that's really when the site took off, and we haven't looked back. It was New Japan in 2012, and then the 2013 G1. And now everybody covers the G1. You know, all, every site in the world does in-depth coverage. Look, no one was doing it then. Okay? They weren't. That was us. And that helped us tremendously. So, the answer to the question is, it's, 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 I don't think it's, I don't know if it's Lucha or Joshi, if one of those things, any, any scene that blows up, any scene that gets hot is going to help the site and help the site grow. At the beginning of um, this year and the end of last year, you know, behind the scenes, myself and Rich and Rob McCarron, we all have our little pet things that we like to push on each other and say, this is what we need to do. You know, we're always constantly thinking of ways to grow the site. And uh, one of mine in relation to this question is I really felt Europe was about to break. 
much like I felt New Japan was about to break in 2012. And I was all over those guys. Look, we've got to get ahead of this. We have to be ahead of the curve on Europe. And we've got to start covering the shit out of Europe right now because Europe is the next big thing. That's the hot scene. That's going to be the hot scene in 2016. And it has been. And I think Europe is only going to get bigger. So we found the right people. We got Rob Reed on the case and we have the the excellent um, uh, Brit Wrestling Roundtable podcast, which does great numbers, does tremendous numbers. And people uh, love that show. It's very popular among Europeans, obviously. Uh, We cover all of the major RevPro in progress shows. We brought on Sarah to cover uh, the OTT promotion in, in, in Ireland. Okay. Um, So we really felt, and I really pushed the idea that Europe was the next big thing and we had to get ahead of it and be on top of it because what if, and when Europe uh, explodes, we're already on top of it. We have great people in place. who are already covering it, who are knowledgeable and that's important. Always have to try to be ahead of the curve and know what the next big thing is. And and clearly it's been, you know, look at all the stars that are coming out of Europe. Whether it's your Willow Sprays, your Marty Skrulls, and now your Pete Dunn's. Who's going to be, you know, we just talked about Bola. You know, and your 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 reemergence of people like uh, Mark Andrews and Mark Haskins. And um, they can go on and on. And the hot, you, you know, the hot uh, Irish promotions, you know, OTT and... Um, you know, uh, you, you know, Grado, who is a legitimate draw in, in Ireland, has drawn some huge houses. Europe was the next scene, man. So we tried to get on top of that. So I think Europe is the growth point. For, if Europe keeps growing, our site will keep growing. Because Europe does numbers. In podcast form and in, in uh, written form. As far as, as Lucha... That has been our blind spot since the beginning of this website, and it frustrates me to no end. We've tried some Lucha writers before. They didn't work out. The problem with covering Lucha is the best people at covering Lucha have their own websites. Whether it's Cubs fan or, or Lucha World or Fredo Aspara or any of those guys, and they do great jobs with those sites. What, what, what advantage is it to them to, to dump their project and come work with us? It annoys me that our lack of Lucha coverage. It really does. It's been something that's always bothered me, but we haven't been able to fill the hole. We're not knowledgeable enough to do it ourselves, and we're not going to... We do not give half-ass coverage. If we're not knowledgeable, we're not doing it. Which was our issue with Joshi in the early days, when that creep, when that weirdo, when that absolute dope... Leslie Leeds used to give us a hard time because we didn't cover women's wrestling when it was still a two-man operation. It was just me and Rich, and we used to explain to him, look, we don't, wa- we don't follow actively follow women's wrestling, so we're not going to write about it or talk about it. It's a disservice to the listener if we don't know what we're talking about. It's a disservice to the reader if we don't know what we're talking about. And he accused us of sexism and all that, which was absolute bullshit. Then we found great people like Sean Flynn, who knows Shimmer inside now. Now he writes about Shimmer for the site and does a great job. We found people like Kevin Wilson, who knew Joshi. We've got Bryn Gunn, who does a great job covering Shimmer. Uh, Not Shimmer, um, Joshi. 
in particular, stardom. So if Joshi blows up like it did in the 80s and 90s, we're well prepared because we've got people in place who are knowledgeable and, and, and will not insult the reader. So we're ready. So if Joshi blows up, we'll blow up. Because we've got the people there ready to cover it. Lucha is a, is a massive blind spot, and we have to find a way to cover that. And I, I just can't figure out how. Cubs fan is gracious enough to preview the big AAA and CMLL shows when they have iPay-per-views or big shows. He's gracious enough to do previews on our site. He doesn't have to do that. He has his own site. And, though, you know, that's great stuff because that's that's, he's the man. But he's got his own site. He's not going to come work for us full time. So if there's any great Lucha writers out there, or Lucha, Lucha people who are knowledgeable and want to cover Lucha for us, we would love to have reports on the um, CMLL streams twice a week. We would love. We just don't have anyone qualified to do it. And it's a shame. We want to put the people who know the product in the right places to cover the product. Look, I used to cover Dragon Gate for the site. I'm a, I'm a pretty knowledgeable Dragon Gate fan. I understand Dragon Gate fan. I understand Dragon Gate well enough, but then we found people who were better at it, so I stepped aside. There's no egos here. Case Low and John and uh, the the Open the Voice Gate crew, they know Dragon Gate better than I do, and they do a better job covering it than I do, so I got the hell out of the way and let them do it. Mogul wants to know, and uh, many people asked about Pokemon Go, and he was one of them. Look, I can't get it to work. I tried to download the Pokemon Go, and I just get a buffering wheel, and I can't get past the load screen. So I've given up. Unfortunately, uh, you know, I was going to make that a Lanza Unfiltered topic, my experience with Pokemon Go, but I can't get it to work on my phone. Mogul also wants to know, would you prefer botches and mishaps be edited out of taped wrestling shows, or should they always be shown in full? Look, if you're going to tape wrestling and there's a major botch, I have no problem with editing it out. I really don't. It's a television show. But again, this goes back to what we talked about before. If I know a match is heavily edited or clipped, I don't think it's... Me personally, I don't think it's fair to rate it. Could New Japan touring the States lead to a bigger influx of American talent? I think what he's trying to ask me is, if New Japan tours the United States like they're rumoring to do, will they then discover and pick up American talent? I suppose that they could. We'll have to see what their philosophy is when they tour the States. Are they just going to use their own talent? Are they going to use a mix? Are they going to use local talent? Like when they, for example, if New Japan runs a show in Chicago, are they going to use local Chicago guys on the undercards? If that's the case, I'm sure they'll discover some talent that they like. But we, I have to see how those shows are going to work themselves out before you know I can give an opinion on that. When is Case taking his spot as the Otunga to your and Rich's JBL and Mauro Ranallo? Okay, well, first of all, Otunga stinks, so I, I wouldn't bury a uh, case like that. Second of all, JBL stinks, so hopefully me or Rich are, are not comparable to JBL. So, uh, yeah, no. Generic Tsunami wants to know, Tetsuya Naito's first IWGP title reign was only 70 days. Is there a notable IWGP heavyweight reign that sticks out to you that was also notably short? meaning that it ended in the first defense or under 100 or so days. Actually, yes, there's been a ton of them. 
short IWGP heavyweight title reigns are not abnormal at all. Um, and I think way much, way too much of, has been made of Naito's short run, where he only had the one successful defense. I mean, there have been probably at least 20 IWGP title runs that were under 100 days, and there's probably been at least 10 where there were zero successful defenses. Some of those due to injury, but others where they were just flat-out short runs. I could tell you right off the top of my head, 1989, when the Russians were around. You know, the title bounced around from Vader to... uh, uh, who was the Russian that won the title? Hashimakov. Hashimakov, right? Was the one? Not Zangiev. It was uh, Hashimakov. And then Choshu, and then back to Vader. And I think there was a run there in 89 where no one had successful defenses. Like four times in a row, they just, you know, it bounced from like four guys until it went back on Vader. And then Vader had the really long run that went into 1990. 1989 New Japan is fascinating when they brought in the Russians and the style of wrestling is very interesting and that stuff's on New Japan World and people should check it out but yeah I mean you know uh, Tatsumi Fujinami has had very short runs look at Masa Chono Masa Chono you know, another, you know huge New Japan star right he won the, IGB, he won the IWGP title once and he held it for like a month and then he broke his neck. I don't, you know, he may have held it longer if he didn't break his neck. But then he never won it again. He had one title reign and I don't think he ever, I don't think he had a single title defense. Tenru had a really short run. Um, Kensuke Sasaki, as I recall, had a bunch of short runs. Look at Tenzan. Let me look this up. I don't want to screw this up. I'm pretty sure Tenzan had a bunch of really short ones. Okay, I'm looking at it now. He did. Tenzan's first title reign was 36 days with no defenses. Tenzan's second title run was 26 days with one defense. Tenzan's third was 70 days with zero defenses. His fourth run with the title was 65 days with one defense. And this is Tenzan. And that was it for him. He had the four... All, all told, he held the title four times and had two title defenses and didn't even hold it cumulatively for a year. Short title defenses are not abnormal for this title. It's just been that recently the title runs have been a little longer. Even Tanahashi, I mean, you know, some of his reigns were short. Nakanishi, okay. He had no successful defenses, but that was more of a Lifetime Achievement Award when he won the title. It wasn't really like a real run when he beat Tanahashi. But yeah, there's been short runs. It's just that recently they've been long. Ever since Tanahashi had the epic uh, title run that ran from you know when he beat Kojima to when he lost to Okada where he held it for over a year and had the record 11 defenses... We've had long runs. Tanahashi was 404 days. Okada, 125. Tanahashi, 295. Then Okada had his long one, his signature run, which was 391 days. 
Styles was 163. Tanahashi was 121. Styles' second run was 144. Okada won it back and held it for 280. And then the Naito run that we're talking about, that was 70 days. So I could see why someone who, who has just started following New Japan since they got hot would think that these short runs, that would think that Naito really got screwed. But in the history of the title, it's not abnormal. The idea behind the IWGP title is that it's hard to defend it. Even these longer runs in modern days are really because there's just less title defenses. They defend the title less frequently now, which is why, which, which is part of the reason why these title reigns have been longer. Because you look at some of these longer, look at Tanahashi when he held it uh, in 2004 for 120. He only had one title defense. AJ Styles, only one title defense in his second run. I mean, Okada held it for 280 days and only defended it three times. Where in the past, guys would hold the title for like, you know, less than 100 days and defend it three times. So no, the short title run, don't read into that. It's really not that big a deal. Naito's fine. There's nothing wrong with Naito. He's over. He's a massive draw. Don't worry about Naito with the 70-day title run. It's not hurting him at all. Uh, Taylor Mitchell wants to know, since Rich isn't there, uh, how are you doing, Joe? Of course, that's a running gag in the beginning of the show. All Japan is in somewhat of a resurgence. How big can they get potentially with their current regime, business model, and roster? Hey, look, you never know. They're certainly on an upswing. They've made some uh, very good business decisions. But it's not all rosy. Um, you know, for their for all of the upswing in their business, they're really still at Noah's level in terms of business. And, and Noah's bigger shows are still outdrawing All Japan's bigger shows. Now, that might change with this All Japan Sumo show coming up. And the trajectory of the two companies are obviously going in opposite directions. But let's not get crazy with All Japan. They're still holding champion carnival shows in front of 150 people. But the trajectory is good. And they've made, you know, they they went full steam ahead with Miyahara, which was the right thing to do. And Kento Miyahara is one of the best wrestlers in the world, and he's a great champion, and it was a great decision. And there's a lot of speculation. Should he lose to Suwama? Should he not lose to Suwama? The problem is if he beats Suwama, he's burned through all of the other challengers already. But they they had to do that, though. You see? Because they, they had to establish him as champion, and they had to keep their business momentum. All Japan's in a position where they have to put on great lineups to continue drawing. And continue building. So now they're in a tricky spot where Miyahara has run out of challengers, so he probably has to lose the Suwama to then give him something to do, to chase. And I don't think losing to Suwama will hurt Miyahara because he's been such a good champion that I think he's firmly established and he'll be fine if he loses. And it'll be a good story for him to chase. Taylor wants to know, what's the worst first date you've been on? Oh, man. Well, I had one girl pull a gun. Now, she didn't pull the gun on me, but she pulled out a gun in the middle of a restaurant just to show me that she had one, and I was terrified. It was just, she thought it was funny. She's, like, pointing the gun at me. I was like, this woman is, this lady's fucking nuts. 
Um, oh, I went on a date. Um, oh, God, this had to be 15, at least 15 years ago. Um, I went on a date. It went okay. She was a little shy. Um, this was probably an 18 or 19-year-old Lanza driving my 89 Firebird. Cool as fuck, right? I take this girl out. We went to see Feeling Minnesota. Look up that one on IMDb, okay? Keanu Reeves and, uh, was it Keanu Reeves? I'll never forget. We went to see Feeling Minnesota, which was a terrible movie. Uh, let me pull that one up. Yeah, Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves and uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. Cameron Diaz. Courtney Love. 1996, so there you go. We're talking 20 years ago here. Teenage Lanza driving his Firebird. Thinks he's hot stuff. So I took this girl out. We went to see Feeling Minnesota. Things went well. Gave her a little kiss on the cheek at the end of the night. I'm a respectful guy, okay? Listen, believe it or not, I don't. I never make the first move. I'm, I, I just it's a personal rule of mine. So I gave her a little kiss on the cheek. People told me it went well. I didn't hear from her for a few days, right? So I sent her flowers. I sent flowers to her house. Because I was, you know, I thought everything went good. You know, I sent flowers to the house. A couple days later, I find out she's dead. I, I, I drug overdose or something. I, I still don't know how she died. But I went out with this girl. Everything went okay. And like four days later, she was dead. So that's not really a bad date. The date was fine. It's just the problem is the girl died. So that was weird. But, you know, I guess the girl that pulled the gun on me would be would be the worst first date. I feel like I'm forgetting one. Ah, who knows? I, I've, had, I've been on so many horrendous dates. But uh, Taylor wants to know, what's the worst wrestling show you've seen live? You know, I've been to hundreds of wrestling shows. And the thing is, I really love wrestling. So it's like, I I don't really, I I don't think I've been to many bad wrestling shows. There's always something to enjoy when you go to wrestling. So I'd have to say it was either the least enjoyable wrestling live show experiences are WWE television. Whether it's Raw or a SmackDown taping, those are always brutal. And I stopped going because they're terrible. Especially like, you know, the commercial breaks feel like they're endless. You go to SmackDown and they used to tape it live to tape. So they would take the full commercial breaks even though it was being taped. And oh my God, it was annoying. And just terrible to go to. Talking segment, commercial. Backstage segment, commercial. Three-minute match, commercial. It's like, you've been there an hour and nothing happened. I want action. Fans want action. So probably WWE television would be the answer to that. I did go to an indie show had to be 1996-ish, I guess. Yeah, because I remember we packed up the Firebird, man. That Firebird, that yeah, we used to take that baby down to the ECW arena. But in this case, we went to a show, Lake Hiawatha, New Jersey, promoted by Fat Frank, who just passed away last year, pre-Jersey All-Pro, when he was promoting, uh, you know, some dingy little indie in Lake Hiawatha, New Jersey at... Um, Oh man, whose who's wrestling school was that in Lake Hiawatha? Uh, uh, Gino Caruso. Gino Caruso. He still has that wrestling school in Lake Hiawatha, New Jersey. And he runs his little promotion, ECPW, out of that building. 
But we went to this indie show run by Fat Frank. And uh, he used to use a pre-Devon Dudley, Devon Dudley, when he was known as the A-Train. The original A-Train on the Jersey indie scene was Devon Dudley. It wasn't, you know, the guy who went on to be known as Prince Albert and, uh, you know, uh, Lord Tensai and uh, Giant Bernard. Devon Dudley was known as A-Train, and he worked for Fat Frank, and uh, he was running this little promotion. And, th- and, that's, and that's how Paul Heyman discovered Devon Dudley, working Jersey Indies as A-Train. Um, so he went to one of his shows, and it was me, my brother, and uh, the wrestler who is now known as the uh, former PWS superstar, now WrestlePro superstar, Big Deal Craig Steele. And the three of us, uh, and at the time he wasn't a wrestler yet, of course. He ended up training at that, with Gino Caruso at that school in Lake Hiawatha, though, to tie it all together. So uh, the man now known as Big Deal Craig Steele, myself, and uh, my brother packed into the Firebird who went to Lake Hiawatha for this indie show promoted by Fat Frank. There were three of us in that Firebird, and, there was, and that, that made up half of the crowd. There were six people in the crowd. I'll never forget there were six fans and three of them came in my car. Six fans. And this show was horrendous. But it was so bad that it was good. It was one of those shows that were so bad it was good. It was headlined by the FBI. Little Guido and J.T. Smith. I do not remember the opponents. But it was Little Guido and J.T. Smith. Against, you know, two, you know, long forgotten indie schlubs. Um, that was the main event. And that's what got us in the building. And I'm maybe the other three guys too. I don't know. But also on that show was a 20-man, over-the-top rope, fans bring the weapons battle royal. Which were all the rage in the days of hardcore. Fans bring the weapons. And I'll never forget the weapon that we brought was a broken Sega Genesis console which the wrestlers then used on each other in this battle royal. And the battle royal was such a mess, the wrestlers were going into business for themselves. There was a black fella by the name of Dynamite Kid. I kid you not, that is the name he used. Dynamite Kid. Uh, We talked to him after the show, and he was clueless that there was already a very famous wrestler who had used that name. It was amazing to me. But anyway, this black guy by the name of Dynamite Kid uh, went into business for himself in this battle royal. He kept getting thrown out, but then he kept getting back in the ring. I guess he didn't want to lose. And he and they would throw him out again, and he'd get back into the ring. And then the wrestlers in the ring were... were, were remember, there's only six fans, and none of us were making any noise. And the wrestlers in the ring were were, were very visibly upset with Dynamite Kid at this point, because he kept getting back in the ring, uh, going into business for himself. He didn't want to lose. And eventually, they sent some guys out from the back to drag him out of there. Um, This guy was just out of control. So uh, that was a horrible show, but it was so bad it was good. And then after the show, uh, several of the wrestlers uh, were examining the broken Sega Genesis console that we brought to the show. And uh, they were trying to figure out whether it worked or not. And we had to inform them, look, guys, it was broken. That's why we brought it to the show. It's not going to work. 
But the, but the wrestler, I, again, a long-forgotten indie guy, uh, he brought the Sega Genesis home, and I guess he was going to try to get it to work. So that was a wacky show that I went to. Taylor wants to know, who is your favorite or some of your favorite stand-up comedians of all time? I love stand-up comedy. Um, Chris Rock, first guy that comes to mind. Uh, hilarious. Bill Burr, tremendous comedian. Uh, Jim Norton, one of my favorites. Jim Florentine. Uh, Amy Schumer, I think, is... Amy Schumer is brilliant. She's gone Hollywood a little bit. She's not who she was a year or two ago when she just didn't give a fuck. I like comedians who just don't give a fuck. I like comedians who don't care who they offend. Um, aren't concerned about being politically correct. I, that's the kind of comedy I like. Um, Amy Schumer, I, if you guys don't watch Inside Amy Schumer, that is a brilliant television show. Brilliant. Not everything lands, but the stuff that does land is utterly brilliant. Not all of it is laugh out loud funny, but it's it, a lot of it is brilliant stuff. It's just clever and smart and, and funny. Big fan of Amy Schumer. Bill Burr, I think, is just another guy who just, I mean, you know. And anyone who's familiar with Bill Burr's work can see the obvious influence in, in some of the things that I do and say. I mean, Bill Burr's great. Uh, this is kind of cheating, but I, I think Larry David might be the funniest person to ever walk the planet. I mean, and he's not really a stand-up comedian. He is, but that's not why he's famous, obviously. He's kind of a failed stand-up, ironically enough. But Larry David, another guy. I mean, it doesn't get any funnier than Larry David. DX versus NWO wants to know, in which manner do you prefer blocks in the G1 Climax to play out? A block where two or three guys are clear leaders all the way through, while everyone else in the block lags far behind. A block where you have a whole slew of guys in contention all the way to the final night. Or a block that's sort of a mix with a logjam in the middle of the tournament or two or three guys then break out to be the clear leaders. I don't care. I just want good matches. I really don't care. I don't get wrapped up in the booking of tournaments and all that stuff. That's secondary to me. I like action. Good matches. That's what I want. That's the most important thing to me. Which should shock no one who's listening to this show. Good matches are more important to me than good booking. I I like good matches and good action. I appreciate good booking in a tournament, but I'd rather you just give me good matches all the way through. The King of Gate was brilliantly booked. I love the way the King of Gate was booked. But man, if the matches stunk, it wouldn't have mattered to me. Whereas, if a tournament has a bunch of great matches and isn't booked well, I can overlook that because I'm getting great matches. So I'd rather have the great matches than the great booking. Ideally, you'd like that both. Ayashim wants to know, how long do you think New Japan saves the Omega-Okada match? Because from the New Day angle, it seems like Omega and the Bucks have one foot out the door. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know when they, if they even plan on doing Omega Okada, I'd like to see it. 
I think if Omega, if they know that Omega's leaving, it would be very smart to have Omega do a job to Okada before he goes. But I'm sure that they have all of um, Okada's defenses for the rest of the year plotted out because Gato likes to book very far in advance. And it does seem like Omega has one foot out the door. And I do expect to see him, especially if you listen to his, his interviews that he's done, he's much more open to the idea of going back to WWE, whereas in the past he was very turned off by the company. And, um, you know, I'm watching TV right now as I record this podcast, and a movie is on with Lu- Lucy Liu is so unattractive to me that I... It, it, First of all, she's a horrible actress. She's a terrible actress. But it's like it annoys me because people think Lucy Liu is attractive and I find her so unattractive that it annoys me that people find her attractive. I don't know why I'm bringing that up, but I just I Lucy Liu is gross. And it bothers me that people think she's hot. What is this horrible movie I have that's on mute? Let me see. It's Play It to the Bone. With Woody Harrelson and Antonio Banderas. A boxing movie. Woody Harrelson's banging Lucy Liu here. I, I just, I've never found her attractive. I don't know. Barry Hess, a writer on the site, wants to know, On Sasha Banks, how would you rate her progression since Battleground? In ring, persona, creative, etc. Do you feel Charlotte has outshined her in this feud exposing a potential talent gap? No, 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 no. And I'm higher on Charlotte than most. People love to bury Charlotte. I think Charlotte's pretty good. She's rough around the edges. But I'm a fan of Charlotte. But the way this is phrased, I mean, Barry seems to think that, no, listen, Sasha Banks is more talented than Charlotte is. Between the ropes, for sure. Neither one of them are, you know, neither one of them are, you know, great shakes on the mic, okay? But I, I, Charlotte is probably more advanced than Sasha in terms of projecting her persona and uh, probably on promos as well. Sasha struggles a little in that regard. But as far as between, no, Sasha is a, a better wrestler than Charlotte. And I don't think that Sasha, look, Sasha was, was look, she struggled. I've been very vocal about that on this show. Um, now, when, when, when he talks about her progression since Battleground, I mean, um, but we knew Sasha had this in her. That's the thing. I can't really call it progression. It's more of a bounce back, I guess. You know, as critical as I've been of Sasha Banks, and really I've been more critical of the people who were afraid to criticize her, but as critical as I've been of Sasha Banks, I always maintained that the in-ring would return. She's too good not to have good matches. So... Unless I'm not understanding Barry's question. It's more of a bounce back than a progression with Sasha. And I don't think there's a... I don't think Charlotte has outshined her at all. And I don't think there's a talent gap there. If the talent gap... If there's a talent gap, it's the other way around. And I like Charlotte. I'm not even one of these Charlotte haters. I like her. We want more of that, wants to know. Other than Minoru Suzuki, who has the best entrance music in wrestling? And on top of that, the best entrance, period. 
Um, I love Satoshi Kojima's entrance music. Not the overdub shit that you get on New Japan World, but his actual entrance theme. Um, I got to tell you, when I had a chance to see Satoshi Kojima live in Houston a couple years ago, and his music hit, and I got to hear, you know, as everyone knows, I'm a huge fan of his and have been for many years. And when I heard his music live and got to see him live, man, was that a markout moment for me. I, you know, that was just great. Um, there's a lot of people with great entrance music. I, I, in, I love Marafuji's music. His little dance theme that he comes out to. That's not bad. Um, you know, historically, my favorite entrance themes from a live perspective were Brian Danielson with Final Countdown and El Generico with the Olay song. I mean, those were great live experiences. Those Ring of Honor crowds singing Final Countdown. And El Generico with the Olay and the, and the fans. Get, those were just great entrances, man. Song and entrance. Great stuff. Finn Bowler has a great entrance right now, and he has great music. And it's there's crowd participation when the lights go out and come on, everybody raises their hands. That's that's clever stuff. You want that. His music is great, his entrance is great. Brock Lesnar has great entrance music. Fits him like a glove. So, you know, there's a lot of guys that have great entrance music. You know, it's uh I think the indies are lacking a little bit with that. You know, you know who, where there's ter- you know who has terrible entrance music? Evolve. Evolve has awful entrance music for like almost everybody on the roster. With Kobe World just completed and a G1 underway, which Dragon Gate wrestler would you most like to see in New Japan and vice versa? Well, the Dragon Gate wrestler that I think would do tremendous in New Japan is Shingo. And really, he's the only one I think that can mix it up with the heavyweights. I think the rest of the guys in uh, Dragon Gate would obviously be juniors, and they would all do well. I would love to see Shingo mix it up with your Ishis, your Kojimas, um, you know, people like that. That, that. I think that'd be great. Evil. How good would Shingo Evil be? I, you know, so my answer would be Shingo. The other way around, who from New Japan would I like to see in Dragon Gate? That's trickier because Dragon Gate has such a distinctive house style that I'd, I'd have to put some thought into that. You know, I'll give you one, Okada. Since he trained in the Toriyaman system, and I love watching him work on the uh, Fantastica Mania shows where he gets to do a little bit of lucha. Okada does his awkward lucha that he dusts off once a year. I'd like to see him do some Dragon Gate stuff. You'll probably never see that, though. Uh, Philip Pajic would like to know, what's your thoughts so far on the brand split? Well, I talked about it a little earlier in the show. I think it's been great. The problem is, how long is it going to last? It started off great last time. Hopefully they see it through and they stick to it. What are your thoughts on Juice Robinson as he is looking good on the undercards picking up victories? Look, I've been on the Juice train for most of the year. He's had some good performances on the Lions Gate shows. Juice is getting much better in the ring. And he's starting to get over with crowds. This is looking, starting to look like a smart move of his. 
scaling back, going to New Japan, reinventing himself. Still a young guy, but he's look. He, he, this guy's absolutely right. Juice Robinson has looked good. He's had some good matches on those Lionsgate shows. Look him up. Alan wants to know what's your favorite New Japan match or memory from the dark years, say 2001 to 2007. These are the kind of questions that, man, they catch you off guard if you don't do your homework. You know, you got to be on your toes when you do a wrestling show, I'll tell you. Um, I got to tell you, Alan, and of course this is Alan Cunahan, Alan 4L. I wasn't much of a fan of New Japan then. Like a lot of people, I threw my hands at New Japan at that time. I was much more into Noah. And uh, a guy that keeps coming up here, my boy Kojima, he bounced the hell out of New Japan. That Those are like the exact years, 2001 to 2007, that Kojima said, fuck this Nokiaism bullshit. Fuck this MMA shit. I'm going to all Japan with my boy Muda. I'm not dealing with this. Smart man Kojima was. So I followed my boy Kojima to all Japan where he had tremendous matches with guys like Tenru, Masawa, Kawada, he had a great match with, but especially that Tenru match. And uh, got the big push, he won the Triple Crown. Those were great years for Kojima. The years that really made me a fan for life. Um, And I was a huge Noah fan at that time. And to tie it into Alan's second question, first, first live ROH show, what did you think? The first time I saw ROH live... And I had seen it on tape previous to that. It instantly became my favorite promotion. And I was all in. And I said to myself, I am going to every Ring of Honor show ever that's within driving distance. And I did until I moved to Texas in 2009. I went to every Ring of Honor show in New Jersey, Philadelphia, and New York City. Whether it was the Armory in Philly or the ECW Arena, Hammerstein Ballroom in New York, Edison, New Jersey... All of the shows there. I went to every show between 2006 and two and, and April 1st, 2009, when I moved to Texas. That Ring of Honor ran in that in those three markets. That's the impression my first ROH show had on me. Instantly fell in love. This is this is the kind of wrestling I like. This is the kind of wrestling I want. It's action packed, and I fell in love immediately. And 2005 till about 2007, Ring of Honor is one of my favorite eras of any promotion ever in pro wrestling. Love it. I love it. I loved it in real time. I love it now. Right up Joe Lanza's alley. Tons of action. Great stuff. Tying this into his previous question, I was all in on Noah at that time during the New Japan Dark Days. And Noah had those English language DVDs that they sold at the Ring of Honor shows. And man, did I run right to the merch table at every single Ring of Honor show, hoping that they had the latest Budokan Hall shows on DVD. That's how I followed Noah. Through the DVDs that I got at the Ring of Honor shows, the Budokan Hall shows. Praying that the newest shows were out already. Looking for the older shows that I might have missed. It's great. Wally Yamaguchi, Choppy Choppy, Your PP from the Val Venus skit on the mic doing the color commentary. So as far as my New Japan memory, look, I'm, there were probably some very good G1 finals in those days. 
it was harder to watch shows in those days. You had to go to like mega upload and download the shows in like four parts on your dial up. And New Japan just wasn't worth the effort. Unless it was a G1 final or a dome show or something like that, big title match or title change that was that was hyped. And Kojima was my guy and he left. I wasn't into watching Bob Sapp and people like that. I wasn't into it. Some of the U30 stuff was good in those days. That was some of the best stuff going on. You know, the rise of Tanahashi. But yeah, I was way more into Noah and, and, and All Japan and, and especially Ring of Honor. You know, people think that, that, you know, I'm some kind of, you know, big time New Japan. You know, that's because New Japan's good now. If this podcast and this website exists, you know, came to be in 2004 or whatever, people would think that we were, you know, Noah cheerleaders. If, if this podcast came to be in 2006, they would think we were Ring of Honor cheerleaders. If this podcast came to be in 1995, people would accuse us of being ECW cheerleaders. I hold no allegiance to any promotion. My allegiance is to great wrestling, wherever it happens to, to be occurring. And New Japan just happens to be really awesome while this podcast has existed. New Japan will cool off one day, something else will heat up, and I'll jump on that bandwagon. I just like great wrestling. We might get through, oh man, I'm, we're definitely not getting through all these questions. I'm sorry, I just don't think I can get to all of them. Let's blow through the next few here. Um, let's see. Uh, Evan Deadly Sins. You may have talked about it briefly on the forum, but I'd like you to expand on your thoughts on this new narrative that Okada, despite having beaten Tanahashi at Wrestle Kingdom, is still not the new Japan ace either with regards to his presentation or the way that he's viewed by the fans. That is, ace chance for Tanahashi and Tanahashi being more over than Okada in most areas. Do you feel Okada is strong in long-term ace or a transitional one until a better one comes along? Most people think he still shines most as the cocky youth heel. Okay, I don't think it really matters, honestly. He's a star and he's a draw. Uh, So is Tanahashi, so is Naito. Um... You know, this whole thing of Ace and whatnot, it's good for storyline purposes. And they're running a storyline now where Okada is annoyed that the company is getting behind Tanahashi as the returning Ace. Uh, It's been made clear that that's a storyline. And I think that gives some juice to the Okada-Tanahashi match. I think Tanahashi should win that match. We'll see what happens. I'm sorry. I think Okada should win that match in Sumo Hall, uh, the final night of the G1. Uh, we'll see what happens. But um, yeah, I, I don't think it's that big a deal. I think all that matters is you have stars. Do they draw? And and, 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 and and that's really all that matters. And Okada has held up well this year. Uh, you know, he his match with Naito drew, you know, ten, a shade under 10,000 fans. Which, uh, you know, the show the year before, the Invasion Attack show against... Um, you know, the AJ Styles of Bushi drew 11-5 with a much stronger undercard with Nakamura and all those guys. The the uh, Okada-Naito match this year with very little support underneath. No Tanahashi who was injured and all that. You know, drew 10,000. They held up very well. Okada and Naito were doing just fine. Rob Reed. Thoughts on the theory of Jado being a better tournament booker than Gato? Since the Noah split G1s Best of Super Juniors just seem to have lost something booking-wise in most eyes. 
with things happening like Naito randomly getting knocked out the day before the final for no reason. Meanwhile, Noah's Global League last year was magnificently booked. Was it? Was the Global League magnificently booked? I don't remember that. It may have been. Um, It's like I said a few minutes ago, I'm more wrapped up in good matches than I am booking of these tournaments. I thought the best of Super Juniors was booked. Well, look, Gato has a very clear tournament pattern. Upsets early. Favorites come back strong in the middle. And then upsets on the final day to knock people out. I mean, that's always the pattern with Gato in the tournaments. Um, you know, Jado's. I'd really have to take a closer look. I don't. I don't remember the Global League being magnificently booked. It may have been. I'd have to take a closer look at at the uh, Noah tournament booking since Jado took over. I, I I really can't answer that until I do that. Gato's tournament booking is just very predictable. It, it's always the same. Predictable in the sense that you know there's going to be upsets early and then upsets on the final day. Not predictable in the sense of who's going to win these things. I have no idea who's winning G1 this year. Let's see. I'm gonna. I, I've got to skip some because I'm not going to get through them all. So I apologize. Uh, it's Burlow wants to know. Not sure if you watched this week's NXT show, but I would like to hear your take on Hideo Itami's Current physical status post-surgery, do you think his chances of ever making the main roster are doomed? Do you see him ever being the same again? Hideo Itami is going nowhere in WWE, and Kenta is my favorite wrestler of all time. It just hasn't worked. There are talented and more charismatic Japanese wrestlers now. We all know that this company has their quotas when it comes to uh, foreigners. Nakamura has blown right past Tadeo Itami. Tozawa will blow right past him if they sign him. Remember all the hype around Itami coming in? It was some big hype, man. It really was. Kenta coming in. He tried to fit in the best he could to WWE, and it didn't work. Triple H told him, be the guy I signed. Unfortunately, he was showing signs of that, and he got hurt. The thing is, he can't be the guy that Triple H signed because the guy that he signed was a grumpy prick who worked very stiff. And that's not going to fly in WWE. People aren't going to want to work with him. He's going to get heat. He's going to make enemies. He can't use half his moves. Couldn't use to go to sleep when he showed up. Punk was using it. Then Punk left and it would have reminded people of Punk. Then Daniel Bryan had stolen, you know, borrowed, whatever you want to call it, half of Kenta's moves because he was fond of the guy. So Kenta couldn't use any of those moves because they were Daniel Bryan's moves. Whether it was the, you know, the, the flying Basuiku knee, which became the, you know, Daniel Bryan's knee, the knee plus, or the, uh, you know, the, the yes lock, which Kenta was using, and he called it the game over, which couldn't even call it the game over because that Triple H kind of, Kenta was just screwed from the beginning. So he had to settle for that flying boot, which is a shit finisher. It was a setup move when he was in Noah. Changed the whole way he works his matches because there were three or four moves that he couldn't use anymore. That's a tricky deal. Couldn't use his hard kicks. He can't kick people's heads in in WWE. He could do that in Noah. He was the man. Do whatever he wants in Noah. He could work stiffer in Japan anyway. It's just, it seems like a bad fit. I really feel like 
it's not going to work out, and he needs to go back to Japan. Not to mention now his physical state. He's a small guy, you know. Nakamura's not a small guy. And he's loads more charismatic. Kenta's charisma does not really translate. His charisma comes from being a grumpy asshole, which he can't be in WWE. Or he hasn't been. Look, I would love to see vintage Kenta in that company. I just don't think we will. And even if we do, I don't think it'll work. Paco Silva wants to know, what movies, TV shows do you enjoy the most? Is there a genre you prefer or a particular era of film TV? Do you have a top 10 movies, TV shows? Well, I'm obviously not going to do top 10s. There's no time for that. The Sopranos is my favorite television show of all time. I've watched it start to finish at least four or five times. Every episode. In order. I love it. If there's a random episode on HBO, it stops me in my tracks and I watch it. I love Mad Men. I love Mad Men. Look, it's a show where nothing happens. That show would go entire seasons where the plot wouldn't move. But I still love it. Loved Mad Men. Despite the fact that nothing ever happened. Boardwalk Empire. Loved it. Lost some steam when they killed Jimmy Darmody at the end of season two. One of the most shocking television moments I've ever seen when they killed off Jimmy Darmody at the end of season two. The show was never the same. I still loved it. But the show was never the same and never recovered when Nucky killed uh, uh, Jimmy Darmody. Never recovered. You needed that dynamic. You needed to root for Jimmy to, to, to go on the straight and narrow. And instead they killed him off. It made for a very shocking moment and a great moment, but the show never recovered. And it was hard to root, you know, there was no one to root for on Boardwalk Empire after that. Because Nucky was an asshole. Nucky was a piece of shit. They tried to give Nucky those Tony Soprano qualities where, you know, you wanted to root for him and... And every time you thought he was making a turnaround, he would do something shitty and you would hate him again. But Nucky was just straight up hateable. Tony Soprano always had likable elements about him. And then they would make you feel stupid because he would do something deplorable again. And that was where the show would tug on your emotions and why it was so great. Nucky was just a prick. It sounds like I'm burying Boardwalk Empire. I still love the show. So those are three shows that instantly come to mind. You know what I just watched? I just watched Love on Netflix. That's the Judd Apatow deal. Ten episodes. I really liked it. I like everything Judd, Judd Apatow does, despite the fact that his stuff is hard. Is, all of his movies are, are a half hour too long. Badly edited. But I love the way he writes his characters. It's... it. it, it People in, in Judd Apatow vehicles talk like real people talk. And they're, they're, his finger is always on the pulse of pop culture. And, 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 it's, it's, it, and that's why his stuff, I, you know, I, I, I like his stuff. I've loved almost all of his movies. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, This is 40, which people, I, I, I enjoyed that. The only one I didn't like was Funny People with Adam Sandler. That was terrible. 
Uh, but but you know, Love on Netflix, which is the Judd Apatow thing, that was a good show. The problem with that show is the male lead, the character Gus. He's supposed to be like this nerdy guy. He's kind of dorky. You know what I mean? A little awkward. The problem is the actor in the role was too nerdy, too awkward, and too unattractive. And he ended up not being believable enough in the role because of it. Because he's banging like these hot girls. And there's no way that this guy... Like I asked my female friends. I'm like, hey, you know, did you watch Love? They're like, yeah, we saw Love. I'm like, would you ever fuck Gus? And they're like, oh my God, no. Not a fucking chance. They found someone that was too dorky for the role. Even though the role was supposed to be a dork. An awkward dork. He was too awkward and too dork. That was the only flaw in love. Otherwise, it was a solid show. And I wasn't even attracted to the female lead in that show. But I still think that in real life, she would never fuck that guy. And that was a, that was a bit of a flaw there. I didn't even think she was attractive at all. I wasn't attracted to her physically, and I'm not attracted to her character. Very unattractive. But but I still don't think it was still weird to me. It was that she would fuck that guy. As far as movies go, Goodfellas is my favorite movie. Uh, Casino, which is basically Goodfellas set in Las Vegas. I mean. Highly quotable. Me and my brothers will just text each other back and forth stupid quotes from those movies. I mean, we could sit there. I could sit there with my brother and watch Goodfellas or Casino. We know every line, and we could just recite the lines as the movie. It's just great movies. They Shawshank me every time. You know, when a movie Shawshanks you, it means when you come across it, you have to watch the whole thing. Up, oh, that's it. I'm in. Up, oh, Goodfellas is on. Got to leave it on. And that, of course, comes from Shawshank Redemption, which is another movie, one of the greatest movies of all time. You come across Shawshank Redemption, that's it, you're in. you got to watch the rest of it. That's where that phrase comes from. So you get Shawshanked. I'll tell you another movie that Shawshanks me. The Breakup. The Breakup with Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston. Listen, just a silly little comedy or whatever. But what I love about that movie, first of all, it's autobiographical to me. I had a relationship just like that one that ended just like that one. My God, was I... I am Vince Vaughn in that... I was Vince Vaughn in that movie. It's so scary. That movie was so scary. Autobiographical. And the other thing I like about that movie is it doesn't have a happy ending. Because you know what? Life doesn't always have a happy ending. And they don't get together at the end. When have you ever seen like a romantic comedy where they don't they don't get together at the end? They go their separate ways like real life. I appreciated the ending to that movie. It would have ruined that movie if they would have got back together. Vince Vaughn, you know, he finally realizes what a dick he's been the entire movie. He makes that dinner for Jennifer Aniston at the end. And you're just thinking to yourself, ah, fuck, they're going to end up getting together. Even though he's a total dick. And deserves to get dumped. And she starts crying. But then she rejects him. She tells him, no, I can't. And she walks out. It's great. 
And then they flash forward a few years. They run into each other on the street. They have a nice little slightly awkward friendly conversation with each other. And they go their separate ways. Like real life. I love that movie. Chituyu Hoga Terabop. Hey, look, I'm just reading the guy's name. Rank in order of dumbness. Wikipedia editors, Yelp reviewers, Guts World refs, Jado and Genba Noah bookers. Well, I think Wikipedia editors aren't dumb. They're just very anal. And people mock Wikipedia as being a bad source. Wikipedia is a pretty good source. You gotta, you gotta cite everything. Yelp reviewers are the worst people on the planet. Yelp reviewers, they're self-important fucking cunts is what they are. They're self-important cunts, Yelp reviewers. These people that will do Yelp reviews for like Taco Bell and complain about their 99 cent taco. It's like, go fuck yourself, okay? There's a Yelp reviewer... um, because obviously I'm in the restaurant business. I have to be up on this shit. There's a Yelp reviewer in Texas who has thousands of Yelp reviews. He Yelp reviews um, airport kiosks. Like, you know when you're in the airport and you can, like, buy, like, a sandwich out of a vending machine or you can buy, like, uh, you know, a quick ready-made salad or sandwich from, like, you know, a little kiosk? He Yelp reviews that shit and grades the... It's like... You, you, you can't be, you can't be a bigger loser than that. You really can't be. Where you're Yelp reviewing airport kiosks and being super critical about it. Well, the lettuce was a little brown, and uh, it only had one cherry tomato in the salad. Oh my god! Just fucking drive into a pole, please. I mean, really. And these Yelp reviews affect people's lives. You know, they really do. It, it's like, and, and it just, ugh. I just, Yelp reviewers are the worst people. I, and this is, it might be slightly ironic coming from someone who reviews wrestling matches. You know what I mean? But it's like, am I the pot calling the kettle black? I don't know. All I know is Yelp reviewers are the smarmiest pieces of shit walking the face of the planet. Self-important douchebags is what they are. I don't watch Guts World, so I don't know anything about Guts World refs. Is Yujiro better than Tamatanga? Well, they're eh, Tamatanga is a better wrestler, that's for sure. Um, Yujiro has his strengths. He has more weaknesses than strengths. I'd rather watch Tamatanga than Yujiro. Shining Wiz. The vaunted IWC loves to eat its own. What was once cool will become a whipping boy once it becomes too popular. Essentially, it's the hipster class of wrestling. It happened to ROH, Dolph Ziggler, Dean Ambrose, and currently seems to be happening to New Japan, judging from the responses to the G1. With that in mind, what current internet darlings are in danger of having the mob turn on them? Conversely, what whipping boy has the potential to have the tide to dislike turn back to love in the near future? This is a great question. And he makes some good points here. 
The vaunted, quote, IWC does love to eat its own. I think, and he make, has some good examples, ROH, Dolph Ziggler, New Japan, Dean Ambrose. Okada is a guy who all of a sudden no one thinks is good anymore, which is strange because he's great. Um, what I think happens is people get tired of hearing praise for someone or something, and that's why they turn on it. They're tired of hearing praise. And it happens to all of us. It's like, if you hear something that's constantly being praised that you're not necessarily super into, it starts to get under your skin. So I kind of understand it. But but he's right. I mean, you know, Twitter and and wrestling fans, they do tend to turn on things after a while. And I, I think that that's why. What's the next thing to get turned on? I, I, you know, it could be anything. Whatever people get sick of hearing praise for. Finn Bauer. I mean, people turned on him. I mean, all he does is go out there and do great things. And, you know, he's a whipping boy right now. Okada has become a whipping boy. Basically, anything that I praise, there's a good chance that a certain segment of wrestling fans will turn on it. It's true. Uh, you know, no one, there was no like Marty Skrull hate on Twitter until, until I started putting Marty Skrull over. Then all of a sudden, everybody hated Marty Skrull. Started calling him overrated. I, you know, it's 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 amazing. So it's like if if you want people to turn on something, the next thing people will turn on is whatever I put over. If I put something over, that's what people will turn on. That seems to, you know to be the trend. But Shining Wiz is absolutely right. You know, wrestling fans really do love to eat their own. It it is amazing. Bill. Knust wants to know what in the fuck does the Southern Wrestling contingent have against you? It seems like Frey and Dylan are always subtweeting you and making snide remarks. One caught my attention this morning complaining about your love of Ishii. Okay, so there's two different issues here. Number one is Frey. Frey doesn't like me and I don't like him. I told him privately I don't like him, and I said in public that that I don't like the guy. And people got on my case, and that's like, why? You like everybody? It's okay not to like someone. I don't like him. I know he doesn't like me, and that's okay. The difference is, Frey is obsessed with me, and I don't give a single shit about Frey. Frey is nothing. He's a complete non-entity to me. He used to bother me. I don't care about him anymore. He's a lonely, sad individual who, you know, uh, who just gets off on uh, saying terrible things about me and and ripping my opinions. I, I don't care. I only see this stuff when people send it to me. And I always tell people, look, I appreciate it, but don't send this stuff to me. I don't care what Frey says. He's nobody. He's nothing. He's just some weirdo on Twitter who 
half the people who follow him have him muted because he's the most annoying person. Uh, you know, he's the most annoying person on Twitter. So I don't know what Frey's deal is. You, you got to ask him. He doesn't like me, so he talks shit about me. But he's obsessed with me. For someone who doesn't like my opinions, he sh- and for someone who, he, he, and you know what he does? He does these fake, blo- like he'll block us or, you know, not follow us. But we're the first f- feed he reads every morning. He is obsessed with me. And I love it. And I love that he's obsessed with me. Because I don't give a single shit about him. He's an obsessive weirdo. I don't know. You got to ask him. As for Dylan, I have no issue with Dylan. I talk to Dylan privately all the time. Not all the time, but semi-frequently. It's very obvious me and Dylan have very different tastes in wrestling. That's okay. We both like to poke the bear every now and then. I haven't done it lately. I don't really, I, you know, I don't really publicly um, get into these things anymore with these people. I'm, I've moved on. I don't want to argue with Dylan anymore with his dumb shit. Every now and then, we talk more behind the scenes than we do publicly. I, every now and then, we talk privately. We have civil conversations. We had a nice conversation, uh, you know, after Dallas, privately. We just have different wrestling tastes, that's all. I, I have nothing against Dylan. And I don't think Dylan has anything against me. If he subtweet, if he subtweets me sometimes, I don't, okay, I don't know. I, you know, people don't like my opinions. They, they can say what they want about him. You know, Frey is obsessed with our timeline. He's obsessed with my opinions. And he's such a coward that, you know, he screen caps the tweets instead of quoting them. Because, yeah, he, like, you know, just quote it. What are you afraid of? He's a weird guy, very weird person. I used to get along with him. I don't like the guy anymore. It's okay. And he doesn't like me. That's fine. It's okay. But, you know, I I, I want nothing to do with his utter, with his utter nonsense. He's, uh, you know, complete non-factor to me. I, he's, he's nobody. Who is he? He's a guy on Twitter who's very annoying and, you know, People privately complain to me about him all the time. They're like, this guy's a fucking nut. You know what I mean? He's a weirdo. I'm like, well, I don't want to hear it. You know, then fucking tell him. They come to me because they know I don't like him, but it's like, tell him. Don't pretend to like him in public then. Just fucking unfollow him and don't and ignore him. Uh, let's see. But yeah, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. And there's, and there's a lot of people who don't like me and that, you know, that's okay. If you, if you have strong opinions and you're going to do a podcast, there's people that aren't going to like you and there's people that are going to subtweet you. And I used to get wrapped up in that stuff. I just don't care anymore. It's whatever. We're doing great. The site is doing great. I'm doing great. Um, here's the thing. We have thousands of listeners to this show and 5% of them even know who Frey is. No one else knows who he is. Or cares. We used to talk about that stuff on the show, and finally me and Rich were like, look, most of the audience doesn't give a shit. They don't know who these people are. So we ignore these people. He's just some guy on Twitter. Who cares? Um, Amplified The Rock wants to know, why are people so quick to judge the brand split? 
doesn't it make much more sense to let things play out and reevaluate come WrestleMania? It does, but the reason people are quick to judge the brand split is because of how it worked out last time. So people are skeptical, and it's okay to be skeptical. Second question, we're really running out of time here. While Yoshihashi hasn't proved it as a solid guy, he's still not an elite performer. Why are people putting him over? Well, I don't think you need to be an elite performer to get put over. Uh, Yoshihashi has looked very good in the G1. He's a hard worker. He always puts in uh, a quality performance, and he's had really cool matches. That's why people are putting him over. I don't think anyone's putting him over as an elite performer, though. So, uh, because he's not an elite performer, but people are putting him over because he's a hard-working guy who has quality matches, who has delivered in this G1. So, good on him. Uh, let's see. Mlev76. What is the end game for the WWN-WWE relationship? Will we ever see WWN footage on the network? I think we will. I think eventually uh, WWE will own that footage. So eventually I do think that is probably the end game. Uh, WWE will own most footage when it's all said and done. And I'm sorry I'm blowing through these, but we're running out of time. Will we ever see ROH and or New Japan Pro Wrestling on a Roku channel or an app that we can access from TV? Yeah, probably. I think that's the direction that everything is going. So uh, eventually, yes. I am told by people in Japan that over-the-top boxes like Roku boxes and things of that nature aren't very popular in Japan yet, Uh, which is why you probably don't see Roku channels or whatnot for New Japan World as of this time. But... Being Chromecast compatible is one step in that direction. But yeah, everything's moving in that direction eventually. Uh, JML wants to know, what's the next promotion that gets raided by WWE like the New Japan Exodus? Uh, I think it'll be Mexico. I think um, they'll continue to look for for Latino stars. And it seems like uh, CMLL in particular and uh, has, has a lot of guys they'd be interested in. And it's sort of the Wild West down there in terms of contracts. And, and if WWE comes calling, uh, Rush is a guy whose name has always come to the uh, you know forefront and, and that sort of thing. Um, but really, it's anywhere WWE feels a whim, they have the power to go in. Uh, these companies need to get smart and lock guys up with contracts because it's a worldwide game now, and they can take who they want. Uh, let's see. I think I am going to manage to get through just about everything. I know I skipped a few of you guys. Uh, let's see. Rainmaker F7 wants to know, do you guys think that Tetsuya Naito is a strong candidate for Thez Flair Award? Yeah, sure. Um, he needs to finish the year strong. He had a great start to the year. Um, he was my pick for a while. Um, he's proven to be a draw. He's had great matches. He's definitely a contender for sure. We'll see how he finishes up the year. And Do Yarvish wants to know, what was the best match of the combined Shingo title reign, and how does it stack up with the with past Dreamgate runs now that it's over? Yeah, he sort of had two runs. He had the initial run where he had the feud with all of the old guys, and to me, those are the definitive matches of the Shingo run, where he ran through Don Fuji, Masaki Mochizuki, and Gamma, and then he had the match against Shima to sort of wrap up that storyline. And of course, Shima used all of the signature moves of his fallen pals and in a very emotional match, which I think was, uh, you know, one of my favorite matches of 2015 was that Shingo Shima match. Uh, those are the signature matches of the run, I think. They may not... Now, the Shima match I also thought was the best match. The Jimmy Susumu quickie title switches, because then Jimmy Susumu beat Shingo for the title. Great match. 
And then about three weeks later, Shingo won it right back. Those two matches were great matches. Probably better than the Gamma, Mochizuki, and Don Fuji matches. But the uh, matches against the older guys, because of the storytelling, will probably uh, prove to be more memorable. And then the second Shingo run, where he, uh, I think he had a defense against Jimmy Saito, and then uh, lost the title to Yamato. So it was really the stuff before he won the, the, the title back from Jimmy Susumu, which is the more memorable stuff from his run. In terms of that run, I thought it was a great run. It was one of my favorite Dreamgate runs of all time. And I think Shingo, uh, we just talked about the Flair Thez. I think he's a strong contender. Unless he completely flops in the second half of the year, I can't imagine him not finishing in my top three. His character work has been top-notch. He drew as champion, uh, shattering the myth that Dragon Gate fans don't like him. And uh, he had tremendous matches, and his character work was top-notch. So I loved this Shingo title run. It was his best title run. I think it'll prove to be the definitive title run of his career. So how about that? And with that, that is the final question. Uh, I got through just about all of them and we're running out of time. So I'm sorry that I had to blow through a few uh, of the ones at the end there. Um, And uh, I'm sorry that I had to skip a few. But uh, it's late. It's 5.17 in the morning as I record this. And I know we're uh, running out of upload time. So, unfortunately, I had to wrap it up. So, hopefully we'll be back next week. Uh, me and Rich back together again. We'll see, though. You never know what happens uh, with life and whatnot. But either way, we'll have some. Uh, we'll have another show for you. So, for the absent Rich Krejci, I am Joel Lanza. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.